Hello again, everybody, and welcome in to another edition of Political Beats, presentation of National Review. You can find us on Twitter. Talk to us at political underscore beats. Subscribe to our feed for new episodes on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Most Mondays, that new episode will pop right there for you. Or find us at nationalreview.com on the Podcasts tab. You can find our fine podcast, Political Beats, along with all the other National Review podcasts for the offing. We, uh, we urge you to listen, enjoy, share, and please leave reviews as well. My name is Scott Bertram. You can find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My co-host... As always, standing by, Jeff Blair. Jeff. Well, I gotta say, I've been better, Scott. I'm uh, currently recording this podcast from a Japanese prison cell. Uh, <laughs> you wouldn't believe what the authorities found me trying to smuggle in. I, try me. I might believe it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, let's, just, let's just say that 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 once once our uh, our editors at National Review find out, uh, <laughs> the podcast may be in trouble. Uh, you find Jeff on Twitter at Esoteric CD. My story is that Yoko Ono planted that in my bag. That's my story, <laughs> and I'm sticking to it. Our guest this week on Political Beats is a talk show host at 6:60 a.m. The Answer in Dallas, Fort Worth. He's a frequent fill-in host for Hugh Hewitt and Dennis Prager, former fill-in host for Rush Limbaugh, author of the recent book, Upside Down, How the Left Has Made Right, Wrong, Truth, Lies, and Good, Bad. You can find him on Twitter, at Mark Davis. You might know the voice. He's Mark Davis. Mark, welcome into Political Beats. It is a pleasure to be in this environment, one that I've only recently learned of and enormously proud to be a part of. Thank you, guys. Thanks for being here. You know, I I, uh, I thought of Mark as a guest because, as I mentioned, he's a frequent fill-in for Hugh Hewitt and Dennis Prager. And listening to Hugh Hewitt's show, uh, all the music bumpers, all the beds coming back from breaks are related to something happy, you know, a music birthday, a music anniversary. And I heard him touting his love of the Jayhawks, uh, which is one of my favorite bands, too. I thought, you know what? Mark would be a great guest for this show. And so we get you in. And uh, and we allow you to choose uh, your favorite band. We'll talk about that in a second. First, though, we turn to Mark Davis, and uh, we'd like to learn a little bit about our guests and how they got into this political uh, biosphere, so to speak. Mark, what's your uh, political job, and how did you kind of get into it? I'll, I'll give you the very short version, and thank you. Uh, this is going to date me, and it's going to make it perfectly appropriate for the artist that we have in store. When President Nixon resigned... Uh, in August of 1974, I was between my junior and senior year of high school and growing up in the suburbs of the Washington, D.C. area in Maryland. So I, I, I wanted to go into journalism like everybody kind of did. And I was going to be a reporter and then the radio bug bit at the University of Maryland. And so I found myself doing radio news in Charleston, West Virginia, Jacksonville, Florida. And then the talk show thing just flat out drops into my lap in Jacksonville in 1982, where I found a station that uh, had sufficiently uh, ill wisdom to give a 24-year-old an actual show. Uh, it was probably pretty terrible for a while, but I guess it got a little bit better. Got to go to Memphis and then Tampa, back to D.C., and then here to Dallas-Fort Worth 
1994, where I'm just about to knock on the door of 25 years, uh, first down the dial at uh, ABC-owned and Disney-owned WBAP, uh, which was the Limbaugh station, and so that's how I got to fill in for Rush. And then station ownership, doing what it sometimes does. There's nothing. The only thing certain in life is change, especially in radio. <laughs> so I wound up making a move uh, to Salem, the wonderful Salem umbrella, the Salem Radio Network, Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Dennis Prager, Larry Elder, Michael Medved, et cetera, and where I'm the morning host now at 6.60 a.m. The answer, able to do local issues, national issues, and one of the great blessings that you've been kind enough to mention, I fill in for, I used to fill in for Rush, which was unbelievable honor. Now I fill in for everybody on the Salem Radio <laughs> Network. So I'm all over the place on the Prager Show and the Hewitt Show. And everywhere I go, whether it's my own program or when I you know, nose in and I'm a guest in somebody else's house, I'm a big believer that little things mean a lot. That every talk show host can give a spin on the Mueller probe or North Korea. And, and I like to think that you know my views are what they are and are sufficiently compelling. But if in so doing, I can take those 20 or 30 seconds of bumper music and play something that maybe somebody has not heard since they were popping in an eight track in their Camaro in 1973, <laughs> then so much, so much the better. So I, I get the best of all worlds. I get the, the creative uh, jazz of a of the DJ that we all wish we were while doing a really, really great talk show gig that I cherish every day. And uh, bringing to the table today, passion and love for music uh, again. And your chosen artist, uh, I don't have to give you a big wind up here, A, because there's so much to cover and B, because everyone knows the story of Paul McCartney and his band Wings from the 70s. So this, we're not doing Beatles stuff. This is Paul McCartney solo. This is Paul McCartney with Wings. This is our focus today of uh, political beats. And so virtually everyone, I think, who is familiar with the Beatles, I certainly hope if you're listening to this show, but perhaps far less are familiar with Paul McCartney's solo career and uh, his time with Wings, especially the non-hits. And there's been somewhat of a retrospective um, kind of uh, re-ranking and re-reviewing of some of these albums that came out through the 70s we'll do some of that as we look back through the uh, the career of paul mccartney and wings but first we toss it back to mark davis to tell uh, to tell our audience mark how did you get into wings and paul mccartney why do you like him so much and why should people care perhaps even beatles fans care about this portion of mccartney's career the old joke comes to mind, and now you could probably tell it about somebody who's as young as 30, where someone asks, wait a minute, Paul McCartney was in a band before Wings? You know, but um, boom. Uh, and, and, and having already dated myself, uh, the, the, the active years of the Beatles, 1964 to 70, I, I was 6 to 12 years old. And any human being... Whatever's being played on the radio, whatever you, or your first records that you're buying between the age of six and 12 is going to wrap itself around your brain. And that entire era uh, of the late 60s is obviously very special to me. So the Beatles break up. I'm 12 years old. I'm inconsolable. <laughs> and I then begin to consume the, the individual product. And, and, and God bless Ringo. Let's put our asterisk out there. But from George Harrison's All Things Must Pass to John Lennon's Imagine to that very, very first McCartney album with that spilled bowl of cherries on the back, I was hooked immediately. The answer I would give is because McCartney, with all due respect to Lennon, it, 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 uh, is McCartney may be the single greatest songwriter in the history of American popular, of the world's popular music, because he's not American. <laughs> uh, we can have that debate all day. But then as, as 
as the solo McCartney album then became Paul and Linda McCartney on Ram and then became McCartney and Wings for some albums that were great, others not so much, but they were all incredibly interesting and they ushered me through my teenage years. Uh, and of course, obviously, Paul's still around, still alive, still kicking, still touring. I'm 60. You know, he's well, <laughs> uh, well into his 70s. And so it's a career that has spanned my entire uh, recognizable and rememberable lifetime. So the, the the hub of it for me does constitute those albums of the 70s. Incredible, unforgettable things when everything that was released went immediately to number one. Uh, Band on the Run, Venus and Mars, all these amazing classics culminating for me in that decade with the Wings Over America tour which may, which may be, listen, everybody has, and at the age of 60, I've got plenty of these, the concert experiences of my lifetime. And sometimes it's because the artist was just so incredible, a Tom Petty, a Bruce Springsteen. Maybe sometimes it's because it's just a, a niche artist that you particularly love, like a Jayhawks or a Todd Rundgren in Utopia. Or maybe it's because the confluence of this artist at this time and when I sat with about 18,000 other people at the Capitol Center, <laughs> the now destroyed Capitol Center in Largo, Maryland, in 1976, in May, and McCartney and Linda and Denny Lane and Joe English and Jimmy McCulloch came out, and they did not only the Wings catalog that had so wrapped itself around my brain and my heart, but also a few choice Beatles songs, I, I could scarcely believe what I was witnessing. So if you take all of that, and, and, and throw it against the backdrop of everybody's tapestry of musical memories. These are among my pockets. Now, how did I find the Beatles? Uh, I'm from obviously a younger generation than Mark. Now, I was born in 1980. Uh, we've discussed many times throughout Political Beats how I've gone through uh, my musical development. You know, I was listening to sort of the radio, you know, pop hits. And then all of a sudden, freshman year of high school, I discovered the Beatles. Boom. And then I was sent down a completely different path, became a classic rock snob for a very long time. Of course, the problem with learning to love the Beatles, becoming obsessed with them, realizing that they are, in any objective sense, the greatest band that has ever existed, is that pretty soon you're going to run out of Beatles music because they didn't put out enough albums, put out a lot of music. But, you know, yeah, they were only active for about eight years. And so where do you go after that? Well, I found a lot of other places to go. But the first and most obvious natural place to turn was to the Beatles solo career. And I had been forewarned. I had been forewarned because, of course, at the same time I was, you know, introducing myself to all of this music. What was I doing? I was reading rock criticism. I was reading Dave Marsh. I was reading Robert Christgau. I was reading uh, the Rolling Stone, you know, these these the books they'd published, old magazines. I had a general sense of what was supposed to be good and what was supposed to be bad, what was critically appreciated, and what was universally despised amongst the solo Beatles material. And boy, the funny thing is, is that back in 1994-95, even still at that point, very much, rather very little, was more universally despised than Paul McCartney's solo career. Oh yeah, Bound on the Run is a good album. Yeah, Tug of War, nice little mature late period piece. But, you know, God help you if you should really ever try to dive into that Wings material or to say nothing of those early Paul and Linda albums. Oh, that's terrible stuff. McCartney was just, you know, some sort of, you know, glib, glurgy songwriter. And I assumed that that would be the case when I first started buying his solo albums. Well, the first album I bought, I bought Band on the Run. Good album. Um, then I bought Ram. 
second Paul McCartney solo album I ever bought. And at that point, I learned a very valuable lesson, which is that I need to stop listening to received wisdom from so-called critics who do not necessarily share my values, do not necessarily understand what they're talking about, and don't necessarily approach things from the same perspective that I do. Because from the first second I put Ram on, heard too many people, the opening song, I was like, this is a fantastic album. This is a magnificent piece of work. Still think that to this day. And then I realized that people had been really, really unfair to Paul McCartney, especially the hip, critical cognoscenti, uh, because they didn't conform to what uh, they had wanted or perhaps expected from an ex-Beatle. <laughs> thing I'll say is that I've always been a music man rather than a lyrics man. That's not to say that I don't care about a, a good lyric, but, but rather that I, I first take to a song based on its melodic or its textural atmospheric interests, you know, all of which are functions of the music. And I think that's why I really enjoy McCartney's solo output more than I'm quote unquote supposed to. I've got the complete works of all four ex-Beatles. Yes, this is true. I, I actually am the guy who owns Ringo's Roto Reviewer. <laughs> I have that album. All right. Um, and you know, while I would still say that All Things Must Pass is the best solo album by an ex-Beatle, it's obvious to me that McCartney had the best career by far. Uh, and the, the legacy, the, li the work that he put out from 1970 you know, to 1982 and then intermittently from that point onwards just speaks for itself. And I will also say that in truth, uh, McCartney's chief sin in the eyes of the rock and roll press was in being both largely apolitical – because, you know, thankfully, there's no sometime in New York City from Paul McCartney, uh, and for which we are all grateful. I, I can't imagine what his I've heard give Ireland back to the Irish. So I can't imagine what his protest. <laughs> album sounded like. Uh, but his real sin is really is just in being more poppy uh, than his colleague. Uh, and in retrospect, those arguments do seem to be shallow. You know, look at Lenin as an example of the danger of mixing sort of political activism uh, with pop music uh, and, and how the music ends up suffering from it. Um, but I would like to level one serious criticism at McCartney, and this is, I think, a rap that, uh, that had been set on him as early as the late Beatles era, but I think has, has a certain truth to it, which is that he's too obsessed with the formal beauties of music, uh, with genre experiments, style exercises, to the point where he sometimes neglects the point entirely that music ought to be a vehicle for some kind of emotional expression mm. or intellectual expression now novelty songs are one thing they have their place and i don't have a problem with silly love songs for that matter unless they're poorly executed but sometimes mccartney's fascination with formal musical perfection on these mid-70s wings songs wings albums it betrays a shallow commitment to feeling uh, 
That aside, uh, he is incredibly worthwhile as a solo artist, and there are so many magnificent gems, unheard gems, you know, by the general public that I cannot wait to explore during this show. Well, you know, it's interesting if, if I could just take a second because mm-hmm. listening to it, that was that was a, a fascinating, fascinating thesis. And it's something that we're going to run across and that you probably run across with every guest you have and every band you have. And I've consumed some of them and I've listened to that. And it's kind of, I, I don't know if I am, in fact, the oldest human being ever welcome to political beats. Maybe so, maybe not. <laughs> but but there's if so proud old guys rule. I'm proud. But the interesting thing is when I hear Jeff talk about his birth, his birth in 1980. His, and, and then when he consumes Ram, the, the Paul and Linda McCartney album, nine years before he was born, there is no parallel for me. Mm-hmm. Nine years before I was born, it was 1948. Right. And yeah. everything <laughs> changed. I mean, so I'm not going to sit here and, and, and offer up, you know, some kind of Glenn Miller swing thing and say, hey, it must be just <laughs> like that for me. Because, you know, the mid 50s birth of rock and roll changed everything so in fact let me just ask if i can before we move forward because i think we're going to run into something i think it it makes it a a richer discussion because you're you're able to have an objectivity that maybe i can't have yeah you listen to the first track of ram uh too many people and you you it was something you discovered as a willful adult and you and you evaluated it purely uh, uh, objectively and on its merits. Does it work musically? Is it is it catchy? For me, it is part of the soundtrack of being thirteen mm-hmm. and and having my heart hurt so deeply that the Beatles had broken up. So I suppose that means I was predisposed to love maybe anything the guy did. That didn't mean I liked wildlife. But (laughs) I had had some level, some level of objectivity. But when I hear too many people, when I hear Venus and Mars, when when I hear Ben on the run, it's it's not just, hey, this is good. It's, hey, this is the soundtrack of my childhood. And right. I and, and I don't know. I don't know if, if maybe you feel no. the same thing about it, about a record I can, about something from 1992. You know, I mean, it, it's, abso- it's absolutely right, Mark. Okay, so yeah. for me, it would actually be you know I I started I listened to sort of glibly to like you know, Pearl Jam, Nirvana, the early grunge stuff, but. I didn't really care about it that much. The point where I really started caring is when I discovered this band that was a one-hit wonder in in Great Britain and then had a one-hit wonder on MTV called Radiohead. And they put out a song called Creep that I didn't much care for, but then they had this another album that somebody gave to me called The Benz, and I'm like, whoa. From that point on, I was obsessed with them. This was like 1996. I was a sophomore in high school. They became like my lodestar, but just this, the, the band that was the soundtrack to my emotional development, my growth as a kid, as a, to an adult through that awkward adolescent phase. And then Arcade Fire came along a little later and it had a similar effect on me. But yes, there is absolutely a truth here, which is that it's one thing for me uh, as a younger generation person coming to these things and treating them, as you say, like historical artifacts, just like I'm going to go to the record store and pick up this reissued CD. <laughs> I got it reissued with bonus tracks. It's become a historical item at that point when they put the bonus tracks and they say remastered with digital sound um it's different than when you're sitting there and it's the new fresh release on vinyl in the record stores now and oh my god paul is 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 throwing shade at john on this song and then john is responding with how can you sleep on the next album that is a very different thing and and you're right and i think i don't want to you know use this now because there's something i want to talk about a little bit later uh i I think that really did color a lot of the reception that McCartney got from critics in his early career. 
And in fact, again, not to bog down in that, but I think you're absolutely right. I consumed the first you know, products of, of Paul and Linda and Wings as a musically hungry teenager. Critics consumed them as, uh, not to just to pick a, 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 a certain character type, as bitter 27-year-olds <laughs> who, who, who felt that they, that they absolutely had to have a harsh view of the Beatles' solo work in order to make the cocktail party circuit. Right, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, Jeff and I are the same age, actually, both 1980. And I think we, we both retreated into classic rock as, what, teens, Jeff? Early teens, yeah, right? Yeah, 14, 13, 14 years old about and, for me. And that's what I grew up on. I didn't grow up on largely the, the passing pop uh, hair metal scenes of the late 80s and early 90s. I was immersed in, in classic rock, by and large, going through my dad's record collection finding venus and mars in my dad's record collection and so you know but but even though it, it was new we were still it was still 20 years ago right uh, th those albums were at that point mm -hmm. and so there's a different different uh, uh track that you take different way of looking at it than if you are experiencing it for the first time as everyone else experiences it for the first time so i think that's very very much a a, a true statement what was it because, and it's funny, I don't want to be the first episode of Political Beats to actually get to no albums whatsoever <laughs> because we're bogged down in, in, in everything societal. But I, like, so last thing for me, because I've been fascinated by this for a long time, and this is a, a rare opportunity for me to talk to a couple of guys who are as musically astute as you are, and it's something that sounds very much like old fart syndrome, but, but here, it, here it comes. That's our show. There yeah. is great, there is great material from the 90s. There are people incredibly talented making music right now. I'm not a basher of all that is new. Not at all, not at all, not at all. But as part of y'all's affinity for classic rock and appreciation for the, the Beatle catalog, the McCartney catalog, is it because the following statement is true? Here it goes, I'm gonna do it on the fly. That with all due respect to everybody that was making, that's making music now, that made music in the aughts, the 90s, even the 80s, with all due respect to, to prolific and talented artists, there is nothing, and there may never be anything like the incredible depth and breadth and magic of the people who were making music during the 1960s and 70s. The sheer volume of it, the sheer range of it. If you take a look at the top 20 songs in America today, but then you go back and look at the top 20, you know, Casey's top 40 in 1972, it's every <laughs> genre and everything is yeah. still a classic. Those days, those days are gone forever. Disgust. Yeah, well, those, those days are gone forever because of the fracturing of modern pop culture. Yep. Yep. Uh, we, we now have so many different outlets to consume media, internet, um, you know, 400 channels on your TV, and, uh, you know, Pirate Bay and you know, various streaming services if you want to get music for free. So everybody can listen to everything they want. You don't have to go listen to Casey Kasem uh, or whatever the top 40 radio play is. And that was a unity a cultural unity that we're never going to reclaim. We're never going to get back. So I don't agree uh, that you know uh, that music from the '90s or the '80s or, or is is somehow less worthy than the music from the '60s. There was a lot of garbage that came out in the '60s that we've forgotten. Just like there was a lot of garbage that was made, like you know, and you know, craftsmanship, you know, um, carpentry. Uh, but we think of antiques as being beautiful and lovely. Well, the reason we like antiques is that all the really bad stuff is in in the garbage dump by now. It's only the 
really good stuff that survived. It hasn't been reissued on CD with bonus tracks. Exactly. Oh. And, 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 you know, like you don't. There, there are no major. We're not going to be doing a major retrospective on Circle, even though everybody kind of likes Red Rubber Ball. Red Rubber Ball. You bet. exactly. But the point is that that the good stuff has kept, and that's kind of why I've always been a retrospective looker uh, with my musical tastes. Is I let time do a lot of the sorting for me. So even now, like uh, what, what's current right now, I'm not as familiar with. I usually wait like five years, which sounds strange, but believe me, there's enough music out there to keep you occupied in the meantime to let things sort it out. Now, this is a debate that we could literally have an entire William F. Buckley firing line <laughs> but we should get to the McCarty stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good idea. Uh, so Paul McCartney um, releases McCartney. And this is an album that was done at home. All the instruments done himself in secret uh and released at a time when there was still confusion about the the, the future of the beatles will he put that to bed with a uh, a Q&A inserted right into the album right where it said the beatles are uh, are not happening and uh, we don't know if they're ever coming back and you know to jeff's point was there a backlash because paul was looked at the one uh, looked at as the one who perhaps broke up the beatles Maybe. But this is also not an album I, I think you would expect from uh, arguably the world's largest rock star at that time, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's relatively simple. There aren't a ton of standout singles. There aren't a ton of songs that you would say might stand next to, to the Beatles catalog. And yet there are some high points. It's a guy trying to find himself and find what he might do next um, without knowing that he was going to do something next at the time, uh, you know, apparently yet. So, uh, you know, I, I think that would be something. A light folk pop song is one of the... There's only two repeated lines in the whole song. And there's a bit of, I, I call it like a scatting, right, from Paul McCartney and his lyrics that mm -hmm. I like quite a bit. And that's one of the nice tracks on the album. Uh, the, the duo of junk and sing-along junk, I think, might be the highlight. Eh, maybe I'm amazed, of course, it's fantastic, too. But, uh, you know, junk has lyrics, sing-along junk does not. I'm inviting you to sing along. Those are really gorgeous songs, and, and the instrumental version, the sing-along, allows you to hear that so much better. It's a gorgeous piano part. You hear the melody in sing-along junk when there, there are no lyrics on top of it. McCartney, very uh, uh, influential for artists down the road. And you can hear, I think, a lot of perhaps uh, uh, Elliot Smith in his work uh, from, from even just junk and, and sing-along junk. But this is an album that caught people by surprise, A, because they weren't sure the Beatles were done, and B, because when they hear it, it's not exactly what you expect from an, from an ex-Beatle trying to perhaps make a splash in his solo career. It benefited from enormous curiosity 
Paul McCartney could have read the local phone book and it would have sold some degree, you know, accompanied by a couple of guitar strums from, from somewhere. But as it was, it was almost impossible to evaluate this on any kind of objective merit because, oh my gosh, the Beatles were broken up. Here is Paul, uh, who's, you know, one of you know, half of the, the greatest songwriting force of all time. Surely this solo album will be uh, at least in the same kind of league with some of the greatest stuff from, from Abbey Road and the White Album and Revolver and Rubber Soul. And you learned instantly that it was a comparison that you could not even remotely possibly make Mm -hmm. because with with John Lennon, because it just wouldn't be fair. It wouldn't be accurate. It wouldn't be literate because with John Lennon removed from the mix and with the band stripped away and, and, and the production totally stripped away, it's him and Linda in a hut in Scotland somewhere. (laughs) And all, all he wanted to do, all he wanted to do is write some ditties that were about how much he loved her. How upbeat was his view on life? And then just throw in, I, I've heard a hundred people talk about songwriting. It's something I wish I, I could do. And I respect enormously, like I do book writing or any kind of writing. And they say, I wake up with these little 30 or 40 second riffs in my head. And then I sit down and I try to build a song around that. Well, what Paul did is let's let take a couple of, of, uh, of instrumentals like Mama Miss America and Valentine Day. They're nothing but a few bars of, of instrumentation, yet they stuck in my head for my entire childhood. <laughs> Throw in junk and sing along, just like you said, which are masterpieces. Then maybe the most famous single record other than imagine maybe the next Beatle has ever done and maybe I'm amazed. And so even sleeping his way, sleepily, casually working his way through a first solo album that was so simple, so stripped down on purpose, he wound up achieving stuff that was, that was just instantly unforgettable. Okay. This is an album that has aged into its skin in a way that uh, no other McCartney album except Ram seems to have, and that it was just absolutely slated at the time, just hated. Uh, it was, it was. I think a part, a huge part of it had to do with, of course, the breakup of the Beatles. The headlines were all Paul breaks of the Beatles. Of course, what we know now, in retrospect, it was really that John had walked out on the Beatles. But uh, then Paul did that little, you know, interview thing that was included in the original edition of the album. And I've got to say, I've read it, and it, it. It comes off a little petulant. Like he, he's obviously a little ticked off about the whole situation. He's, he's he sounds very defensive, and boy, everybody was just primed to hate him. And also because John had then, you know, in the meantime, been releasing all these very kind of woke singles, like you know, "Give Peace a Chance" and "Instant <laughs> Karma." Power to the People would come out not very long after this. You know, John was on the right side of the zeitgeist in terms of what the critics were looking. He was for. very woke, Jeff. He was very woke. Yeah, exactly. He, he, he was as woke, as woke as it gets. I mean, he'd be walking around wearing a Mal badge and, and one of those berets not too much later after this. Uh, this is the guy who himself actually went around saying not too long ago before that, that if you go carrying pictures of Chairman Mao, you're not going to make it with anyone anyhow. But, uh, you know, McCartney didn't want to do any of that. He released an album that sounds like it could have come. As you said, it's an Elliott Smith album or it's guided by voices or it's like, you know, one of Ryan Adams weird, like, you know, side releases kind of thing where it's just him doing these these weird demos it's it's an intentionally small and humble statement which i respect so much and i almost think like 
this hadn't been done before. Nobody had pulled that kind of a move before. Mm-hmm. Um, and now it's done a lot. Sure. It, the whole like, oh, artist makes a left turn. Here's his you know, <laughs> weird quirky release. That's like a trope now in, mo- in pop music and rock music. It was not in 1970. Uh, I mean, Dylan kind of tried to do that with self-portrait in order to get everybody off of his ass and say, like, I'm not your uh, generational, you know, songwriter. Leave me alone. So he intentionally released a silly album uh, and he got kicked all over the curb for it, too. McCartney was not trying to get kicked all over the curb for it, which is the interesting thing. It's like, I don't think he knew quite what he was doing. I don't think he realized he was going to get kicked as hard as he did Mm -hmm. because this stuff is intentionally small but in retrospect what a fun and happy and warm album this is every night is like the first song yes because that's that's there was no way we're getting out of here without Without, wonderful wonderful love song and he was he was the aficionado of love songs and this is absolutely one of his best every night i just want to go out get out of my head and then these double track guitars going up and down the, the scale and oh just a beautiful small little song really well thought out and produced every day i lean on a lamppost i'm wasting my time Every night I lay on a pillow, resting my mind. Every morning brings a new day. And every night that day is through. But tonight I just want to stay in. the other thing uh there's no question that the major song one of the most important songs paul mccartney ever wrote is maybe i'm amazed it's the only song on this record that feels like an anthem people were expecting as as mark pointed out people were expecting hey jude Mm -hmm. they were expecting you never give me your money or let it be or something like that um and instead you got a bunch of little like fun instrumental sketches and demos and then like you know you have teddy boy which is a song that i don't like that much to be honest you know it's just like you know here's a stupid story about a little kid in great britain you know yeah what a kind of dumb song but then at the end of it you get maybe i'm amazed which is not only the greatest tribute that paul mccartney ever wrote to linda I think, and I think maybe one of the greatest love songs that anybody will ever write to another person. But also one of the most fascinating examples of how you can create a groove all by yourself. We talked uh, just uh, a couple weeks ago when we were doing the Foo Fighters about like that first Foo Fighters album with the Dave Grohl recording all the pieces himself. It's a one-man band album. And all these one-man band albums inevitably have a weirdly hermetic and insular feel <laughs> because you're not – jamming in a room with other people you're not responding subtly to like you know if the drummer picks up the pace bit or slows down a bit or if the bass player you know plays a funky little like you know figure uh, there's none of that natural organic thing going on so it's all rather formalized and ritualized and so it can usually end up sounding stiff maybe i'm amazed sounds like a band which is remarkable given the fact that he just did every single track himself over you know, dubbing one after the other after the other. And what a fantastic tribute to Linda that is. Maybe I'm a man, maybe I'm a lonely man who's in the middle of something. 
but yeah beyond that it, this is an album that is intentionally small but has grown in stature because of its willful humbleness its willful humility over time and it got the ever-living crap kicked out of it by the critics. This was released, and, you know, oh, my Lord, the hatred that was amassed upon it is uh, is truly amazing. You know, John Lennon got away with releasing The Wedding Album and Two Virgins and, you know, Unfinished Music, and George Harrison was releasing these quirky little electronic sound solo albums. Uh, nobody cared about those, but this is the first real, supposedly real solo Beatles album expectations were very high uh, he did not give them what they were looking for and they never forgave him for it uh, but in retrospect we all realized this is a really fun record maybe maybe last thing uh, we can bog down on this as long as you want because I it's, it's rekindling my fascination with it but I'm going to go back uh, here's old guy syndrome again in this in this current day of flipping around individual tracks and never even listening to entire albums in their in their succession I would take that massive black disc of the 33 and a third and I laid it down and put the needle down and then it just builds from lovely Linda that would be something Valentine Day there's every night and, and then and you get to junk and you go, man, this is great. And then kind of the sloppy, lovable man we was lonely. And then you flip it over, and the first cut of the second side is Ooh You, then Mama Miss America, another you know cool little you know four-minute instrumental, then Teddy Boy, which you're right, is a, is a light. But then, bam, right before Maybe I'm Amazed, there is the reprise, there is sing-along junk. And all of a sudden, you are taken back to roughly... 18 minutes earlier, if you're playing everything in its succession, mm. you're reminded of what a masterpiece junk was. And it's funny, sing-along junk is longer than junk, like yeah. 30 seconds. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and then, and it, while that is still washing over you, then comes the full band of McCartney, every voice, every instrument by him for Maybe I'm Amazed. It was sublime. And here's the funny thing. So as I said, this album got kicked all over the curb when it came out. Oh, McCartney is half-assing it. What is, what, what is, what is this junk, this sing-along junk that he is trying to fob off on us? Where is the, the great Beatle, the songwriter that we all knew and loved? And he was stung by it. That's the thing. McCartney wears his heart on his sleeve on these early albums. You know, after Band on the Run, I think he, he feels much more self-assured and he's just going to do his thing but in that early solo era where he was really kind of reeling from hit to hit wasn't sure he, he wanted to still he wanted the Beatles to continue he never wanted them to end it was John who made basically pulled the trigger on that so he never really found his footing and when he got you know just dragged all up and down the musical press from McCartney his response was I'm going to come back and I'm going to give you what you guys say you want I'm going to do a really well put together you know well produced slick orchestral you know well thought out album full of incredibly great pop melodies I'm going to call it Ram he puts it together he releases it and it gets treated even more harshly than <laughs> McCartney, which is just one of these ironies. Nowadays, nowadays, it's kind of, you know, sort of a commonplace acknowledgement that Ram is, if not Paul McCartney's greatest solo album, at least up there, certainly in the discussion. Uh, it was hated, passionately hated. I went back and I did the research. I read the articles. This album was loathed universally, despite the fact that it was commercially successful. It was loathed, and I just find it inexplicable. Now, I could say, basically, I could spend the rest of our show on this album, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to let you guys go first. 
Well, the, the, it, it, let us stipulate that it's almost impossible to go back to 1971 and expect anything to be accepted on face value. Because still, now we're a year, you know, a fraction after the, the breakup of the Beatles and all the, 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 the upper echelons of the critical mass, you know, the, the community we've already talked about and so properly maligned, uh, th- th- they weren't gonna be straight shooters in this. They weren't gonna be, and not to bog everybody down on my biography, they weren't gonna be the, the growing teenager that I was thrilling to the melodies uh, and the, the d- deliciously sloppy crunch of too many people and, and the bluesiness uh, of, of three legs and smile away. And that's before we even get to one of the craziest singles anybody ever put out, <laughs> Uncle Albert and Admiral Halsey. Yes. So even when I got to the second side and you got, you know, it's kind of funny. People dream of writing songs as catchy as McCartney's throwaway stuff, like Monkberry Moon Delight. Okay, I'll never write Monkberry Moon Delight. He did, and it's probably the the, the part of Ram that I could you know could give a flip about. But the this, it showed once again his diversity, once again his deep deep love for his wife, in a kind of a if there was a sweetness to McCartney, uh, this was uh, a kind of spicy. You know, the, 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 uh, I think uh, eat at home and long haired lady for crying out loud. I mean, you can almost hear the, the heat coming off of this, of their relationship at backseat of my car. I mean, come on there, there's teenage lust. There was much to love, much, much, much to love in this. And as a consumer, uh, you know, in his wheelhouse at the time, I sure did. So first of all, I actually had Monkberry Moon Delight at Cold Stone Creamery last night, and it's a fantastic <laughs> flavor. You should have some. Um, of, of note, it's this is a Paul and Linda McCartney credited album. I think the only album in existence credited to Paul McCartney and Linda McCartney, and I think there probably was some hard feelings about that as well. That Paul is now sh- Paul shared it with John, but now Paul Paul and Linda, what? Who? Yeah, the the lawyers didn't like that either. They accused <laughs> Paul of trying to dodge certain copyright issues by claiming he co-wrote these songs with Linda. But look, I think you know, as Jeff said, there's there's some. There's a little reaction here from from Paul to give the people what they want to to quote the the Kinks and others, right? There, there's a little bit of Beatles esque uh, pop f- filing in here, Heart of the Country, which I love. This great acoustic bounce to the song, you know, it's kind of like Blackbird a little bit. Uh, Uncle Albert, Admiral Halsey, which is I always think it's massively long, but it's not. It's four. It's just it's under five minutes long, but you have the the, the multi part. Uh, pieces of the song, the hands across the water section, live a little, be a gypsy. It's just ridiculously catchy. How many hooks from that song could be turned into? You might have an album's worth of hooks in that one two-part song, Uncle Albert. Let me tell you the one thing from Uncle Albert that always sticks with me. It's it's Linda Car- Linda McCartney's fake British accent yeah. <laughs> when uh, you know she had a cup of tea and a butter pie, and then she butter has, pie, butter <laughs> pie. It's like Linda, you're from New York for crying out loud. <laughs> Who do you think you're fooling there? Admiral Halsey, notify me. He had to have a birth or he couldn't get to see. I had another look and I had a cup of tea and a butter pie.
Too Many People, which Mark mentioned, is a great, great lead-off track uh, to the album. Uh, Finger-wagging it at Lennon, which he would return serve, as Jeff mentioned earlier, too. One of my favorite tracks, I love Smile Away from start to finish. Mm-hmm. And of Absolutely. Note, right? It's not just smile. because It's not just a, you know, be happy. It's smile away, right? It's, it's smile in spite of things. And um, I, I like to think of it a bit as, as Paul dealing with some of the some of the press in the post Beatles world, asking him questions about his future albums and what about your relationship with John and what about Linda being a part of the band? You know, smile away, just answer, smile away, and and you know, underneath the smile away chorus is two lines: don't know how to do that, learning how to do that. And there's a lot of truth to to both of those lines in what Paul was beginning to do by himself in his solo career. I really like Smile Away. I don't know. I wasn't alive in '71, as as we've mentioned. I don't know though how you can listen to this and not and, and call it you know just a steaming pile of dung, I, I, uh, which 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 the reviews really did say back then. Uh, it's just it's it's a very very good album, and it's not as if I, I just don't understand. What the what, what the argument was against it, uh, near as I can tell, and, and actually I can tell because as I said, like I I was fairly obsessed when I discovered that I really liked McCartney's solo stuff. I went back and I was like, but why has everybody told me that this is garbage when I can use my own ears and the evidence of my ears tells me it's not? Um, there was a real anger, as I said. There was the whole John Lennon versus Paul McCartney dynamic, the sourness over the break of the Beatles, the sort of like John is 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 part of the hip, you know left political tribe paul is just sort of a callow entertainer thing all those things uh but there was also a general sense that what mccartney was doing is retreating from the universalism of the best of his work with the beatles and i think this is again as i said at the beginning of the show a th- somewhat of a fair argument you know think about what, what do we think of as, as the great late period classic late period mccartney songs the biggest singles it's songs like hey jude let it be Long and Winding Road, even, which is not one of my favorites, but everybody else loves it. Uh, these are songs that, you know, nominally they're about certain things. Hey Jude is nominally about, like, you know, John Lennon's divorce from Cynthia. It's written mm-hmm. to Julian. Uh, but they're universal. They have, like, public shared meanings that everybody can embrace. They can mean something to you. They can mean something to me beyond what they may have ever meant when McCartney wrote them. They have this sort of universalistic aspect to them. They feel grand. They feel big. You know, and, and they don't feel pompous either. And so you go from that, that era of McCartney. So even you never give me your money celebrating the entire history of the Beatles. Uh, you know, you go from that era to, you know, another day where it's, you know, every day she takes her morning bath, she wets her hair. Uh, ooh, okay. Well, this is somewhat pedestrian, isn't it? Uh, McCartney's suddenly writing about much smaller, more private and more personal things and frivolous things. 
I don't think anybody really understands what ram on is about. McCartney says it was kind of thing his way of saying, like, I'm going to kind of ram on through all these problems into, you know, making a new life for myself. In retrospect, I guess I can see what he was going for with that, but I would never have gotten that from the lyrics. I just think it's a really beautiful ukulele-driven song. Eat at Home is basically a sex joke packed up into power pop <laughs> you know you know heart of the country is just like a nice little skiffily country thing all right uh, clearly I- inspired by his love of canned heat um so i get it it seemed like mccartney was not writing for the world the way the beatles were perceived to have basically with all of their releases been writing to everyone for everyone for the world they had become that big that the expectations were that big but i will say this there are songs on this album and on all these later albums that have real emotion and real power to them and the one that i want to fixate on is the backseat of my car that is my favorite song on ram i think it's one of the best songs paul mccartney ever wrote it was his attempt at doing sort of like a big, you know, you know, highly, you know, compact, uh, sweet-like series of melodic ideas that turns into this orchestral extravaganza, and there is there's a certain desperation that you hear in the backseat of my car. You know, oh, we believe that we can't be wrong. We believe that we can't be wrong. You know, we're going to make it to Mexico City. We're going to escape. We're going to find a place for us that is not just an affectation. He's not just using a trope to write a lyric. That comes from the place that McCartney was in at that moment, him and Linda. This is an aspect of these early albums that I just, I've never heard anybody comment on before, and yet it doesn't exist in my head. Throughout all of Paul's pre 73 albums, there's this current of desperation. It's not hopelessness, but it's this beleaguered sound of somebody who's on the run from his past. Over and over, he tries to prove himself on each of these albums, whether it's by stripping the sound down on like McCartney or Wildlife, or by making a big production out of Ram or Red Rose Speedway. And, you know, he always had commercial approval, sure, but I just I get the sense that he's scrambling for something more. He's struggling for a respect that is constantly being denied to him. And to my ears, it infuses these early albums with a passion that his later work often lacked. You know, because on Ram and on Band on the Run, 
despite the fact that he was a member of the greatest and most important band in the world, he sounds like he's a man with something to prove. And on Ram, he does a damn fine job. You, you want a, just a burst of rank amateur psychology here? Because just in hearing uh, your thoughts about this, which all resonate uh, enormously, backseat of my car, before we leave Ram, I just want to make sure I mention just a, just the wonderful, wonderful two, roughly two minutes of Dear Boy, another just great piece of little pop song craft. But just see if this uh, is worthy of uh, a brief salute. McCartney never had, never had a normal young adulthood. In the way that we talk about Michael Jackson never having a you know a normal childhood, and God only knows what that yielded, usually when you're 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, you're finding yourself. You have you have the the benefits of adulthood, but still the opportunity to make a bunch of mistakes and feel the that angst and that anxiety. Okay, I'm a grown up now, but what in the world do I do? It, 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 what he was going to do at the ages of 20, 21, 22, 23, 24 was obvious. Every step was laid out so that it was only upon exit from the Beatles by the time you know he, he was you know at the crest of, of his 30s that was when and only then he had the opportunity to have anything that even resembled insecurity anything that even resembled unpredictability so therein that that's what brought maybe some of that urgency and from there um McCartney wants a band right uh, he doesn't want to just be Paul McCartney and Linda McCartney. Wants to put something together. So he does for the very next album called Wildlife. Denny Lane brought in ex-Moody Blues. He would be the one uh, constant Wings member through the years. Uh, Denny Sewell also brought in to play on, on Wildlife. Uh, I don't know what you guys think of Wildlife. Oh, actually, I do because Mark mentioned it earlier. Um, <laughs> this is a pretty lightweight album to me. There's not a ton of care with the songs. There's not Wait, a ton of crap. Why, why, why are we using euphemisms? It's a bad album. <laughs> it's a bad it, it album. It sucks. It's not good. Uh, I'll tell you. Let's I, just I, admit it. It's not good. I really, I really don't like Love is Strange, the kind of slight reggae uh, song on, on the album. The first two songs are called Mumbo and Bip Bop and gives you an all idea you, all you of, need to know. of what's happening <laughs> here. Says, Five of the songs were recorded on the very first take and were keepers and not because they were fantastic takes, I don't believe. Um, the, the one song I, 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 I uh, well, uh, Dear Friend, someone can talk about Dear Friend. I, I will also mention, I think Some People Never Know is not a bad song. It's, a, it's an okay song on a, on a bad album. Uh, but for a first Wings effort, this was not, uh, this was not uh, a real good harbinger uh, for, for the next uh, few albums for, for Paul McCartney and Wings if you're just going on what's happening on Wildlife because it's a tough listen. And as Jeff just laid out there, it's a bad album. It's a bad album, and I'm only going to say this. There are some songs in the middle of it that, in retrospect, I realize that they're well-written. They're just poorly recorded and played. So Tomorrow, I Am Your Singer, Some People Never Know, those are songs that have potential and could have been good if they had given them the time that they deserved. The, the ideas are there. The melodies are there, and, and even the, the lyrical conceits are there. But, uh, you know, McCartney just insisted on going into the studio and recording it in, like, one week and boy, it shows. Just you know, the the vocals don't sound committed. The, the the instrumentation, the way the band is playing, it sounds like they're really not sure of their parts. Which, of course, they couldn't have been because they'd only been playing the stuff for about a week. <laughs> so, and yeah, you know, again, this is as I said earlier, this is him you know, being buffeted about by the winds. He's like, oh, you thought my last album was was too studio bound and too like you know pretentious and overproduced? Well, here. 
year. I just got together with some guys and jammed this thing out in a week. And, well, you know, I, I preferred the, the studio-bound pretentious stuff, to be honest. Well, and and it, may, it may involve how much authority uh, McCartney had, no matter who was doing the engineering, because a fairly significant guy was at the controls for this named, uh, named Alan Parsons, yeah. who had just finished working on Abbey Road and Let It Be. And a couple of years later, he would help with that other album. Yeah, what was that? Dark Side of the Moon. Uh, so I think basically even Parsons knew uh, and, and all the other engineers and such who worked with him knew that Paul was going to do what Paul wanted to do. <laughs> well, the less said about that album, the better. Red Rose Speedway, the follow-up. Uh, Henry McCullough comes on board from Spooky Tooth. Uh, and this, perhaps the very first smash hit, My Love. I'm going to go back and just use the phrase lightweight for My Love uh, because it was a hugely successful song on Red Rose Speedway, but uh, it's not one of, my, one of my favorite McCartney compositions. I know there are certain... Wait, wait, wait again, why, why Cavill? It's a terrible song. It's a terrible... <laughs> oh, guys, 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 guys. I, this, this almost gets into a parallel of movie discussions you can have where there, there, there are movies or maybe TV shows that are admittedly sappy. And if you take them in a certain way, and I don't know, once again, here's time number six that I'm going to mention this generational thing. At this time, I'm getting to be about 16. <laughs> and I, I mean, is my love one of the great love songs? No. One of the great McCartney songs? No. But there is a, I, 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 there's a sincerity to it. There's a simplicity to it. His love for Linda was so affecting. Maybe it makes me willfully blind myself to its sins. My love does it good. Whoa, 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 whoa. I get it. <laughs> I get it. I get it. And yet, uh, decades and decades and decades later, in its way, as what it is, it stands up. And when the cupboard's bare, I'll still find something there with my love. It's understood. It's everywhere with my love. You want sappy, Mark? Okay, I'll give you sappy. You want sappy? Sappy is Little Lamb Dragonfly. That is a song that Paul McCartney literally wrote for a children's music show that he was intending on doing at some point in his career. Actually, he ended up doing it late in the uh, later on in the early 80s, but we don't really need to worry about that. Uh, this is a song about like a poor little lamb who's dying and he can't save it. And it goes, it, it's a sweet, it, it segues into this dragonfly piece. Um, it is sappy and yet beautiful it is one of the most if you have even the slightest sentimental bone in your body which i do uh you cannot help but love when paul mccartney goes la 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 absolutely la 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 it's just such a beautiful little piece dragonfly fly by my window and then you hear linda and denny in the background singing i'm waiting can't you see me i'm waiting it's just a beautiful well-constructed sweet musically that is everything that he had done on abbey road and doesn't get appreciated because it was never released as a single and it came out on an album 
uh, Red Rose Speedway that is otherwise dismissed and treated as, as kind of a redheaded stepchild in, in the McCartney discography. I went back recently. This is an album I hadn't really listened to outside of Little Lamb Dragonfly, um, which I love and I always like kind of push on people um, for a you know, over a decade, uh, more than that even. And I find myself thinking, this is a better album than I thought it was. I really like Big Barn Bed, which is a, a, a song, song that had been bouncing around from yeah. the Ram era. You hear it, actually, in the play out of Ram On. Um, he goes, you know, who's that crawling around my, my doorway? And uh, that's a great song. Uh, Get On The Right Thing is actually a really effective rock track. When the Night is pretty subtle. And I even like Single Pigeon. Silly little piano song, kind of, you know, in the honey pie vibe, but I think it works. Uh, it's just my love. Uh, I'm going to quote Robert Criscow when he says, like, I'd like a stylus wide scratch upon that song <laughs> to remove it from existence. And I really think that that medley at the end is a bad idea. It's just laziness. It's just like, you know, four half-written songs that he never bothered to finish and kind of point up that, like, you know, the the Paul McCartney medley, it really ain't a patch on that side to Abbey Road medley. But, yeah, there there is there is at least one song on Red Rose Speedway, Little Lamb Dragonfly, that just must be heard by everyone listening to this show. I was so afraid of where we would get to this point because it, it is McCartney at his sappy worst slash best, depending upon what you bring to the table. Um, I, 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 just in hearing you work your way through you know, some of the lyrics. And then when I go back to, you know, since you've gone, I never know. I go on, but I miss you so. You can hear, I mean, what, whatever. Oh, and the way he sings, like, in my heart, I feel the pain. Yeah, yeah, coming and you back do, again. And, you and, and it's And people just need to go get that and do that. And, you know, here's a quick telegraph. It's one of my five key tracks at the end of the, the, end of the show. <laughs> and it is for exactly this reason. If you're not a willful consumer of the heart on the sleeve McCartney, that this will be like a, 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 a sucrose overdose. But if you are, if you're on board, if you're willing to travel the emotional road that he wants you to travel, uh, Little M Dragonfly is, 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 and I don't throw this around, a masterpiece.
And if we're going sappy, I actually really like One, uh, one More Kiss uh, from this album. Very mid-tempo, pop-type song. But, uh, I mean, it's the, the simplicity to it, right? I, I said a foolish thing last night. I didn't think you'd take it bad, but now I'm on my way again. And just before I go, only one more kiss. Never yeah. meant to hurt you. It's just, I, I, that's a good point by Mark. I mean, if, you, if this, you're not into it, this is not your album. But, you know, if you are, there are some highlights. And I'll, I'll echo... <laughs> McCartney was obviously clearly aware of people having conversations like this. Yeah. You know, a couple, a couple albums from now, obviously he's going to write silly love songs, which is about the product that everybody knew was his stock in trade. We'll it's, about my, it's about my love, basically. I'll echo Jeff quickly too on get on uh, get on the right thing. One of those songs that are just kind of bounces around the catalog. You might not have heard it. Definitely worth a listen. A leftover from Ram. And vocally, one of those uh, kind of helter-skelter type vocal performances from McCartney when he really lets go with some whooping and there's some soaring choruses. Really, I think one of the better choruses uh, in, in the solo wings type career. Get on the right thing is, uh, is, not a, is not a sappy love song, but a kind of up-tempo highlight from Red Rose Speedway. can before we, we roll on I, I, I'm, it's not like I'm going to rush in and say that it's wonderful because it's not but I might want to push back against the back of the hand for that 11 final minutes of the medley of Hold Me Tight, Lazy Dynamite, Hands of Love and Power Cut. Uh, I like talk- Power Cut. Power Cut's okay. As, as, oh, okay. I, like <laughs> I, I understand. It's only one quarter of the 11 minutes. But but it's it's. I guess the only observation I make is that uh, in talking about the songwriting craft, once again, here's Paul with four half-formed songs that that he made fit together. And whether you like them or, or don't really, at one point, he basically finds himself singing all four of them at the same time, and it does work. It Political. does work, but we're talking about second-rate songs. And, 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 you know, <laughs> and when you're dealing with You Never Give Me Your Money and then reprised by Golden Slumbers, Carry That Weight, the comparison well, is inevitable. That's, that's where the bar can, is set. It we're can never live game. up to that. It can, <laughs> never live, it can never live up to the moment in Carry That Weight, you know, where you Ringo and the, girl, and the group is singing, you're going to carry that weight a long time, and then, boom, the horns come in, and, oh, wow, you're back to You Never Give Me Your Money Again, and the tears just start streaming down your face because of the emotional import of what it means. Let us stipulate that the medley on Red Rose Speedway is not Abbey Road. You'll get no argument from me. <laughs> <laughs> but see, and, and here's the funny thing. So like, you know, after uh, yeah, the thesis that I've been advancing throughout the show, you know, he's been bouncing around seeking critical approval, you know, you know, Hey, what do I have to do to please these guys? Uh, 
he finally figured it out. What did he do? He went to Lagos, Nigeria, which turned out to be a terrible mistake. He decided, <laughs> I'm going to record my next album in some exotic locale. It turns out he chose a place that had just undergone a violent revolution and had a studio, an EMI studio, that was only eight track, which at that point was deeply primitive, and uh, was also full with street crime and uh, was filled with people who were not exactly happy to see uh, noted British people, uh, Paul McCartney and Linda McCartney and Denny Lane, just showing up. And by the way, that's the other thing. The band was a trio now yep. because their drummer and their uh, other guitarist had left in a huff uh, after arguments during the rehearsals for the band. So it was just Paul, Linda, and Denny Lane alone in a rather unhappy and somewhat hostile country recording an album that to me is the peak culmination of this this search this desperation that you hear for approval i mean the, the title the, the title track band on the run it's not an accident he's he's not just writing a, a little story song about you know sailor sam and the jailer man no it's not about that what it's really about is wings is the story of paul and linda and denny on the run trying to like put something together to create a legacy to create meaning to create some sort of uh, you know independent identity outside of what he had already been done a man on the run from his past <laughs> That is Band on the Run. That is the entire album from start to finish, from Band on the Run all the way to 1985. There's a reason that people generally cite this as McCartney's greatest solo album. I don't know if I would. I would say it's up there. I think that some of the lesser moments of this album do not uh, you know, hang on to me. I've never been a fan, uh, in a way a lot of other people are, of Let Me Roll It. I've never been a fan of Mamunia. Uh, and uh, it's... It's funny. I was about to say that I've never been a fan of Picasso's last words, but what I did realize, that even just as I said it, is that I wake up periodically from sleep, from my dreams, with the chorus of "Drink to me, drink to my health, drink to my health." You know, I can't drink anymore. <laughs> Which is telling, because it's a song I wasn't going to say I don't like. But if I don't like it, how has it become wormed into my brain so deep <laughs> yeah. in the folds? That's the genius of McCartney. My occipital lobe that I have it there forever, forever. And, uh, you know, there are songs on this album that are great. They're classics. Everyone knows Band on the Run. Everyone knows Jet. I think Jet is a song that I could have stood to, you know, gain from better production. Uh, but there's two ones that I want to single out. One of them uh, randomly is the first Denny Lane 
co-credit on the record. And that's no words. It's the first time Danny Lane wrote a song on a Wings album. It's a great song. It's one of my favorite songs on this album. It's just a pure love song. Uh, it is a very uncharacteristic, structurally song. It's a kind of a quiet thing that builds and builds. And then all of a sudden you get this soaring Paul McCartney falsetto that takes it all the way to the end. And I've never understood why, you know, more people don't react to no words. I think it's just a magnificent piece. And it's all and it's all packed into two and a half minutes. Two I mean, and a half it, minutes. It, it, it's so it it's so packed. It wants to get it's a, it, it builds. There's the crescendo and then bam and it's and it's a lot of production and a lot of vocals. Um, I don't know. I mean, not that everything has to be a hit, but it, it, its construction was so odd that that maybe it was never really anything that was going to be on the radio. In fact, it was it's never going to be on the radio. But it's right. such a good and song. As the, popular as, as, as Band on Run and Jet were, those were the only things that had, and, and Helen Wheels, I guess, got some airplay, of course. Mm-hmm. But but the, the rest of it is stuff that was never going to get radio airplay. Paul knew it and 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 wanted to get with 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 Denny and of course Linda, who they try who, who get shoehorned into everything. God love her, and and make something that was uh, just his next uh, step in the in the creative maturing process in what was now starting his fourth year of not being a Beatle anymore. And the other song I want to name uh, is, you know, there have been visions of the apocalypse from all the way from uh, the book of Revelation to uh, whatever the most recent Marvel movie uh, out in the theaters right now is. But none of them have been more appealing to me and more fascinating and more (laughs) underrated than the last song. Band on the Run, which is 1985. No one ever left alive in 1985 will ever do. Of course, you know, this is a song written in 1973, so you have to, you know, 1985, boy, it's sad. How old are we now? You know, it's 2018. (laughs) 1985 was, this is like, you know, we watched Blade Runner, the original Blade Runner by Ridley Scott, and it's set in like 2020, and you're like, wait a second. That, 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 that. That's the Trump re-election year. <laughs> I don't think Los Angeles is going to look like that. <laughs> so 1985, take away the years. But the beauty of that music, this really just pounding piano thing that he, that McCartney came up with. And then you have this very funky bass line. Boy, you know, Paul McCartney's bass lines, well, they're always underrated with the Beatles. But even with Wings, people yes. just don't give him credit yeah. for how smart he is at coming with really funky stuff. But what I'll never, never, ever get over is the final brilliant build up at the end of that song where you know it goes into the dum dum ba dun 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 and then the horns come in and then the strings come in and the clarinets come in and then everything is you know bum 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 and then 
band on the run. And then it goes right back to the beginning. It goes right back to the beginning again. It's not not a concept album, but man, the full circle execution of that is just like you stand up and you clap. So great. Anyway. It is. And, and you have huge moments like that. And then another and then other little sappy, dumb things that I'll never forget, like Bluebird. Mm-hmm. I think Blue Bluebird is 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 masterful pop craft. I don't think there's anything dumb about Bluebird. I think it's a beautiful song. Yeah. So I, I, I think I think it's it, it's obviously, you know, people are inevitably gonna compare it to Blackbird, right? And that's a pretty heavy burden to put upon yourself but bluebird <laughs> is a very different song but also a very worthy one i think that's a beautiful love song without you know the the story that jeff touched on is the the making of the uh, of the album that that's a movie script right there i mean they're they're in nigeria uh they're actually they're robbed at knife point uh had their demos taken uh paul and lynn had the demos taken it, two band members quit they get to a studio which is looks like the one that tom petty found in the you got lucky video full of cobwebs and old equipment and uh, and then they're actually they're, they're threatened at a local establishment by a local musician to say, you're here to steal our music. You're here to steal our African music. And that's no local musician. That's Fela Kuti. <laughs> right. That's a guy I could do a show on at some point. That's one of the great Afro beat musicians of all time. Yeah, he, he was very angry. He thought like, oh, here here comes the white man imperialism to you know come take our music and, and, and popularize it for us. And McCartney actually invited him to the yeah. studio. To listen, first listen. Of, you know, here's what we're recording, and it's like it's jet. Like I guarantee you, <laughs> we're not we're not using your Afrobeat stuff here. I promise, well, my friend. Of not course, so much. you know. First, he said, "Don't worry, it's not me." Paul Simon's going to be here in ten years to do that, um, and then he took him back to the studio and played him what they were working on. Um, you mentioned 1985, which is really one of my favorites from the album. Absolutely, I love Jet. The exuberance and the vocal performance that. Uh, just is is wonderful. The, the horns to start the song, love Jet so much, and the, the you know the the multi part suite of Band on the Run. 
Again, you think of the number of, of hooks and the number of little pop corners that are built into the title track of Band on the Run. Lots of themes of escape and freedom uh, in the lyrics to this album. Jeff touched on this in the, in the intro. I think finally the sound of McCartney kind of eluding the, the, the long shadow of the Beatles and at least becoming comfortable with what he was doing in this in, in, in his solo and, in, in, well, new band career with uh, with Wings. Could he have done that uh, recording elsewhere? And maybe, maybe not, but certainly the, the locale and I think the isolation from everything else happening uh, helps to put this together. It, it does, and and in it, this is also the beginning of the crest of critical acceptance. It's funny because we we've spent a lot of time talking about how ultimately unimportant critical acceptance is to any individual music lover's uh, appreciation of anything. But in in preparation for this, I went back and found. Uh, everything that John Landau at Rolling Stone was saying during the solo career of McCartney, and he hated Ram with a <laughs> white hot passion. Yep. He called it totally irrelevant, completely inconsequential. Uh, but in, in in Landau's review of, uh, of of Ben on the Run, he said, with the possible exception of John Lennon's Plastic Ono Band, the finest record yet released by any of the four musicians who were once called the Beatles. So this is when even his snarkiest critics were starting to come <laughs> around. Yeah, John Landau, of course, went on to turn Bruce Springsteen into the music's answer to John Steinbeck. So I don't really care too much about his critical opinions. But, but, but yes, yes, no, I'm well aware of it too, right? And so finally, critical acceptance. He won. He won. He won the way. He won the war. He won the race. Um, and everything after at that point, I think, was gravy for him. It, this actually... Band on the Run was not an immediate hit. It only reached number one after like months sort of percolating underneath the charts, um, basically on the strength of its, if its critical reviews and its reputation. Uh, but the next album that he would do to, go on to do uh, would take a year. He added another member to the band uh, with uh, Jimmy McCulloch and uh, recorded a single called Junior's Farm, kind of a fun throwaway kind of pop single. Uh, but then he decided to relocate to New Orleans, of all places and uh, record Venus and Mars. Now, this is one that I never can find a consensus on. I have never been a huge fan of Venus and Mars myself. But meanwhile, a lot of people consider it to be nearly the equal of Band on the Run or uh, you know, right up there with it. And I'm interested in seeing what you guys think about it because this to me is a, is, is a significant step down. I'm pretty disappointed by it. But I know that there are tons of people out there who would argue strongly with me. It's it. This is being me. It's a, it's a multi-layered answer. But if you take a walk <laughs> through it, uh, I think it is buoyed completely by the, the the first roughly seven minutes, which is that Venus and Mars intro and 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 the segue into rock, rock show. show. Yeah. One of the great solo Beatle comp, uh, compositions. Ever and the 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 the, the very invocations of things you know you, you can imagine kids just like me sitting at a stupid concert <laughs> bathed in pot smoke. What's that man moving across the stage? It looks a lot like the one used by Jimmy Page. It's like a relic from a different age. Just tremendous. <laughs>
that's all done and you're exhausted. You know, a rock show at the Madison Square, the concert, Gabo, et cetera, et cetera. And then he throws you into three minutes of the mediocrity of love and song. And then the, the <laughs> old, and then here's the McCartney. I, I like love and song, man. Well, there's nothing the matter with love and song. Okay, okay, okay. But then, and, and, and then here's the, the sort of the old timey terpsichore of you gave me the answer. The, 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 the effect, the, uh, the, the, Com- how do I? Find- I'm looking for an adjective. Magneto and titanium man is as dumb as a mud fence, and yet, like so many other things, it's just instantly it's instantly unforgettable. <laughs> Letting go, I think, is a really meaty piece of, of very nice music. Um, the Venus and Mars reprise on side two, Spirits of Ancient Egypt, the nice vocal by Denny Lane, uh, I, I think, is kind of cool. Medicine Jar sticks with me because there's written but written and with lead vocals by jimmy mcculloch who was probably ripped out of his mind for most of the recording of this album and who would himself die not long thereafter then call me back again is good listen to what the man said will never be my favorite mccartney uh uh, single, but it's funny that so four minutes after that of treat her gently and lonely old people is kind of the uh, the, the sentimentality of Little Lamb Dragonfly. I'm not making a comparison, but but it's 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 kind of sweet and kind of nice. So it's a B to me. But, but so I guess that places me squarely between those who think it's a masterpiece and those who think it's just not good at all. I guess I like it most of the three of us, and it might be because this is the uh, the first Paul McCartney Wings album that I uh, ingested, again, going through my, my dad's uh, LPs. He had Venus and Mars, so that might have something to do with it, but I listened back today, or I listened back, you know, prep, prepping for the show, uh, and I still like it an awful lot. You guys covered the, the opening, you know, uh, duo of tracks, which gets it off to such a great start. I like that music hall shuffle of uh, You Gave Me the Answer. Magneto and Titanium Man, dumb. But that organ groove is there. And it Absolutely. It's is just fantastic. Oh, it epitomizes bad taste. Ah. Come on. Let it go. <laughs> bump, 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 baseline. Oh, it's disgustingly bubblegum. Oh, man, it did, bothers me. I think Letting Go is fantastic. Very funky, bluesy uh, number. There's brass in there. I like the way the chorus feels darker than the verses. Uh, the chorus really kind of gets gets dark. Uh, Medicine Man, uh, uh, Mark mentioned, great track. Call Me Back Again. I think that's a great vocal track from, from yeah. McCartney. Uh, a piano-based kind of kind of soul number with, with horns again. Uh, the instrumentation on Venus and Mars is very good. And again, listen to what the man said is not my favorite McCartney track either, but it, it does what it does, and it sold a bunch of, uh, <laughs> moved a bunch of albums for him too. <laughs> I think Venus and Mars is, is very close to, if not the equal, uh, of Band on the Run in my mind. And, and, and the addition of Jimmy McCulloch, who again was just 20 years old, when he joined the band, I believe, just 20. And Joe English on drums, too. It's a little more poppy. It's a little more polished. I like McCulloch on the album quite a bit. I think it's a strong set of songs. So you know, is, it's funny. You mentioned running across this in Dad's record collection. I, I'm, I'm going to make a reference to another thing that will never, 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 ever happen again. I mean, we don't even have CD cases anymore. We, <laughs> down, we download everything. But when you went flipping through those album jackets, yeah, and there was that black album jacket with only two things on the cover a what looks like a yellow unmarked pool ball 
and a red unmarked pool ball. This was the amazing work of the cover artist known as Hypnosis, H-I-P-G-N-O-S-I-S. Oh, yes. We, we've encountered them before during our Led oh, Zeppelin episode. Yes. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. And I, I mean, it just – and it's it's funny because when you're a kid and you're buying these things, you, you, as you're listening to these things, you are letting – the imagery of it, the you know the, the the artwork of Ram, the artwork of Band on the Run, where they're all in that spotlight against that brick wall, yeah. uh, the 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 sign of uh, the the old school signage of Wings at the Speed of Sound, uh, which we'll get to in a bit. But just the, so th- this this is probably burned into my brain as much as any album cover ever, and it's probably the sparest in terms of content of any album cover ever. This is the album for me, as I said earlier, where I feel like the complacency begins to set in a little bit with the band. I, I, I recognize that it's not bad. And it's one of those records where I came back to it again you, know, you just this week when we were, you know, we, we booked the show. And we, you know, I'm going to make sure I get, you know, remember what my opinions were on these things. There were songs that I had dismissed earlier that I've come back to when I decided I liked. Call Me Back Again was a song I didn't like. I didn't have much time for when I was younger. Now and I've spent a lot more time with soul music and R&B music. I recognize what McCartney was going for there. It's a straight up kind of a Wilson Pickett you know, blues shouter soul mm-hmm. kind of a thing. I just, I, I do still feel like that his vocal on that is a bit too much sounding like phony hysterics, plastic soul, you know? Um, and I just wish that he could have done a better job bringing it off. Like he does on a track that we'll mention on a later album. Uh, but the songs that I really want to single out on this, I, it's not rock show, which I think is okay. Venus and Mars, nice little mm-hmm. theme. The one that I really like is "Letting Go," mm-hmm. which I, it, you know, I know Scott praised. I like "Letting Go" a lot. As I said, that's a dark song. That's a dark chorus. It's a quiet thing that slips between the cracks. You, you don't even realize it's on the album. It's certainly never going to be released as a single. Not going to make it onto the greatest hits. But that is a really sharp, little, quiet, angry. Well, so, yeah, it's yeah. quiet, you say, but then when that brass kicks in at the end, Because, because, because quiet for McCartney is quiet for different is quiet is different than other people. For quiet, you know, for McCartney, it's just like not making it like a massive number one hit single, um, <laughs> you know, or like a, a giant production number. That's quiet. Love and song, of course, is the other one that's like that. And the uh, the one other one that I really need to single out, which nobody really talked about, and I think that's a shame, is listen to what the man said. I think that that is one of hmm. Paul McCartney's best pure pop singles. I love that song. And I normally don't love, you know, glurgy, sugary, sweet McCartney. But this, to me, kind of feels in a similar vein to what you would have heard on Little Lamb Dragonfly. That's a sad song. This is a very happy song. I love the joy of the song. I love that soprano saxophone on the song. Um, I just love the the 
happy glibness with which he rolls off the the chorus of that you know no matter what the man said love is fine for all we know for all we know our love will go that's what the man said so once you listen to what the man said and then it's a really smooth beat and it kind of reminds me when we were talking about billy joel a couple weeks ago on the show uh one of the favorite songs that i picked for him was don't ask me why Mm -hmm. and i said well people will be like well why would you choose that that seems to be you know of all the things you could have picked that's just like one of his random pop hits and the reason is as i said it was very mccartney-esque and i kind of was thinking of a song like listen to what the man said when i praise don't ask me why and this is what i love about mccartney's pop mode is that he can write these really beautiful pop changes and melodic developments that seem natural seem kind of, you know like unforced seem so smooth and so uh, so natural that you don't even realize that they were really well composed and they took a lot of time to think about that's to me what listen to the man said is um and i really think it it just doesn't get nearly as much credit as a lot of his other pop hits do By the way, that actually carries us to the next album. This is the point at which Wings embarks upon a massive world tour. Um, The United States, Europe, everywhere, here, there, and everywhere. And uh, in the middle of it, they make the terrible mistake of deciding to record an album at the same time. This is something I never recommend to any band. Don't record an album (laughs) while you're on the road unless you are Neil Young. Um, because unless you're going to come up with a time fades away or a rust never sleeps, what you're going to end up coming with is a bunch of songs that end up feeling half-baked, which is what I really feel Wings at the Speed of Sound ends up sounding like. Uh, Ironically, though, this is his greatest selling album. This is the biggest album Paul McCartney ever had in the United States during Wings' heyday, and of course, we all know the reasons for that. (laughs) Two singles that are... um, I've used this analogy before, but they're earworms like those worms in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. They're going to drop them in your ear, and once you've heard Let Them In, you will never get those piano chords out of your head. Once you've heard Silly Love Songs, good luck forgetting that bass line, my friend. You're doomed. (laughs) You will never forget those songs again, whether you want to or not. I actually love both of them. And I'd be happy to talk about them, but I don't much care for the rest of this album with one exception, which I think is the best song Paul McCartney ever recorded. But I'm going to let you guys talk about that first. Oh, my gosh. I, I hope it's the same one that that stands out for me. I, I, I respect 
let them in and silly love songs, but I've never had much use for either one. It's the same way I kind of feel about listening to what the man said, which is weird because Billy Joel's Don't Ask Me Why, I think is great. And I don't make that same connection, but that again is, is obviously left to the individual. Uh, th this is an album where he's, he's trying to be so very, very democratic about things yeah. and, and farm things out to people and not with good results. Linda uh, did uh, not need to sing a song, Mark. Come <laughs> on. We did not need, nobody ever needs to even listen to Cook of the House and may she rest in peace. Uh, I, I don't know what Denny Lane was thinking on the note you never wrote. It's okay. I don't know. You know, we even give Joe English a song and must do something about it. But then boy, oh boy, here's some more dark foreshadowing as G Jimmy McCulloch yeah. does a great vocal and a great song that he wrote and a really nice fuzz guitar solo on Wino Junko. I yeah. loved it. I loved it. Listen, with, with my, my teeth clenched, please tell me that you are talking about the six and a half minutes of Beware of My Love. Oh, yes. Yes. Oh, yes. That is uh, okay. I'm, I'm going to stop you right there. This is the song I've been waiting to talk about all show long. This is the song that I literally, when I try to explain to people, hey, Paul McCartney's solo career, you, you think he just made a lot of pop dross. Let me tell you something, my friend. I push this song on them. Beware my love. It's track four on Wings at the Speed of Sound. Yeah, as random as it gets, this is a mid-70s Wings album. Who the hell cares, right? You have to hear this album. This song is the reason you have to hear it. It's In case you haven't heard it, it's this ear-pinning hard rock song that opens with this spooky kind of organ vocal section and this brightly mic'd acoustic guitar pattern. And it's impressive as hell. It's it's pretty complex in its construction. And what's more about it is that it's convincing. McCartney was not always convincing when he was doing his hard rock mood. Sometimes he felt like he was just, you know, like putting on a, a mask. He was doing the voice. This song sounds desperate. It sounds really haunted. There's something about the organ in the background when he's like, no, no, no. I must be wrong, baby. Oh, my God. Every time I hear it, I get transported back to the place that I was sitting cross-legged on the concrete at a bus stop after I had bought this CD and put it into my little tiny Discman. Welcome to the mid-90s. I had put it in my Discman and I put it on and I was hearing it and I heard it and I, instead of getting the bus, I just decided to walk home because I wanted to listen to this song. Six minutes, I put it on, repeat. I heard it seven times by the time I got home. It is the most remarkable thing he ever did, and it is one of the truly remarkable gems that hides among all of the vast, you know, the vast sprawling mass of Paul McCartney's solo music. Please beware my love, people. It is the greatest thing I think he may have ever done. Okay, we'll put you down as undecided. Uh, <laughs> that was I, I was I was spellbound. I was spellbound just listening to that.
and I and let me add a note or two about the about the production of this because the previous cut is the simple lilting "She's My Baby" and she comes yeah. out at night taking me by surprise, and, and then so it ends on its key, and then it prolongs. And then the organ fades in. in. And then you begin that, that, I guess it's a harmonium, that little keyboard that, mm, that then begins to get the, 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 the acoustic guitar figures. And then just the, the sweet harmonies of can't say, I found out, can't tell you what it's all about. And then beware my love. And then eventually, you know, I must be wrong. And, and, and it's funny, when you're triply, quadruply right, the people have to hear it. When you hear us describe it, and talk about beware of my love and I must be wrong. I have to leave. And when I'm gone, I'll leave my message in my song. It sounds banal, not, right? It sounds, it, sounds totally banal. it sounds trite. It sounds incredibly trite, even hackneyed. But this, but this goes back to one of the first things you said. Lyrics are important. The words we sing are important. But because I'm like you in this way, what grabs me is the musical mm. product, the notes that people have cobbled together to make something. And this is as effective and compelling a piece of written music as I think McCartney did as a solo artist. So absent or not absent, but outside of maybe three songs, uh, I don't think there's a lot here. This is the one album I think I would certainly say is a bad uh, album. Beware My Love is great. So I love songs I like. I, I don't mind Must Do Something About It either from uh, Joe English. But to, not, a let, not a Let Him In fan, though? Eh, not, eh, it's okay. Um, this, to me, is, this is, you know, we did a Credence episode. It's like Mardi Gras from Credence, in which everyone gets involved and things don't turn out too well. For different reasons, of course. Uh, Fogarty was trying to punish his bandmates, and I think Paul McCartney <laughs> was just trying yeah. to, uh, you know, allow them to have some of the glory here. I think he, he had the finest sentiments behind putting it together this way, but it just doesn't work uh, very well. I, I, I'll spend a second on Silly, silly Love Songs, which Mark kind of dismissed. But I think Silly Love Songs is a fantastic song. And it's one of those that, yes, would be dismissed as being one of Paul's Silly Love Songs if it weren't, in fact, called that. Because that, that uh, you know, the, the lyrics, some people want to fill the world uh, with Silly Love Songs. What's wrong with that? I'd like to know, because here I go again. And then what do you follow it up with? The most, I love you. Right. The most simple expression you could possibly come up with i love you i think there's a genius to that i mean i really do and 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 the melody and, that and song the way is, he turns it into a, a a round yes because he says i love you yes, and then yes, you know, yes, Danny the is like, part. how can i explain it's the perfect. way i feel about my loved one and then like you know you have linda doing the third part oh it, it actually ends up becoming he turns triteness and simplicity into something yep you know uh, it, it is one of the greatest fu's i think to <laughs> and especially it, because it, it's right up there with neil young's ambulance blues you know where you know he actually like goes out he's like all you critics you know who <laughs> make fun of me uh you know it's the same kind of a thing but it's done paul mccartney it, style and especially like saying, oh, well, you have a problem with my love songs well, here's one that you'll never forget
Yep, and, and especially when, because he starts it with that assembly line uh, effects, right? The, oh, it's so easy to crank out these t- these number one singles. It's just you know putting parts together in a, an assembly line. No, that bouncy bass line, that wonderful piano horns and strings, and and the multi part vocals that Jeff. It's just it's a perfectly constructed song. And again, again, those lyrics with just the simplest expression you could possibly think of of saying, I love you. I am a sucker every time for silly love songs and I don't feel the need to apologize for it. Speaking of that assembly line opening, I've always been fascinated by that. I'm not the only person. Surely I'm not the only person, although I feel I am every time I bring it up to other people, who is absolutely convinced that that was inspired by Pink Floyd, right? Uh, McCartney has always been pretty close friends with David Gilmore, like even back in the early 70s. And he did a, an instrumental on Red Rose Speedway called Loop, First Indian on the Moon, which is a, an absolute tribute to, to metal era Pink Floyd. Um, sounds exactly like – he even like made it a point of like the drums sound like Nick Mason would hmm. play them. The bass sounds like Roger Waters. Gilmore ended up playing on a lot of his songs later in his career. They were very yes, friendly. Yes. Silly love songs – that opening like that is totally money the same loop of like the money exactly the money bags dropping the cash registers clinging he took the sort of art rock you know you know very you know challenging meter version with money and he, he it's almost part of the joke he made it a pop smash by turning it into 4/4 time but yes i've always thought that that opening was a direct tribute to floyd <laughs> and also a way of saying like well i can take your your innovations and your ideas and i can turn them into like a worldwide number one <laughs> smash because i'm just that good which he was Political yeah, was, and it was only three years later. I mean, Dark Side of the Moon had been out for about three years, so yeah. why not? That's as, uh, as valid a, a theory as anywhere. Now, it's kind of funny, are we? Because uh, uh, we're, we're going back to something Jeff had said. I think we are now done with, with one exception that we'll get to when we finally get there on this, what, just looking at the clock, what may be the first six-hour uh, edition of, uh, <laughs> of Political Beats. Um, do you want to do Wings Over America now or in a separate uh, vein? <laughs> I don't need to. I, I never liked it that much myself. Mark, you should, uh, okay. let's do it now. Because Mark, wait, you, you were at two dates on the tour, right? I did. And here's the thing. So I'm living in, in, the, in the Maryland suburbs of Washington, D.C. And I knew this tour was coming. And so what I did is when I saw it in my hometown, I had seen it before two days earlier at the Spectrum in Philadelphia. Uh, I, I had a friend of mine up there who, who lived up there, and uh, it, it was just something that I, I had to do. And it was the and listen, I've seen Springsteen, I've seen Pink Floyd, I've seen everybody. I, the, the the pound for pound best show I've ever seen is Petty. I'm bitter that somebody got to Petty before I did, but I'm having <laughs> such a great time today. I'm okay with it. But to be to be to be 19 years old with the Beatle catalog. And the Wings catalog that we have now discussed just so far, to sit down in a seat and, and, and be in the same room as Paul at the age of 19 and have him come out and start that, uh, that, that it, with, with Venus and Mars and Rock Show, uh, it, it, it was and, and here's the thing what, what the, the live album does is it brings you that. So I guess if you were there, it's a nice memento of having been there maybe if you weren't there or you're listening to it 20 years later it simply may not stand up as much 
And, and I, so I'm, I'm willing to stipulate that. Uh, but I'll, I'll tell you the thing that that, that, was, that people need to understand how magical it was, and then I'll shut up about it and we can move on to other stuff, is when on the actual set list where he goes through Maybe I'm Amazed, then Lady Madonna, Long and Winding Road, but then Medicine Jar, then some stuff from, uh, from Band on the Run, Picasso's Last Words, and Bluebird. Then it's acoustic time. Hmm. Three acoustic songs that he just sits there in a spotlight and does. And those three records are I've Just Seen a Face, Blackbird, and Yesterday. There is nothing like it in my life. And as you as you pop on whatever version you have of Wings Over America, you have to understand that in the America of 1976, with people gathered there probably in their teens and 20s, you know, uh, to, to see this man uh, who is on his way to, to, I think, still becoming the greatest songwriter of all time, roll out every significant cut that you and I, you guys and I have talked about from the solo career and that particular Beatles material. Uh, it's there's nothing like it ever. Political beats. Scott Bertram, Jeff Blair, and Mark Davis this week at Mark Davis on Twitter. Talk radio host six sixty AM. The answer in Dallas Fort Worth. His recent book Upside Down: How the Left Has Made Right Wrong, Truth Lies, and Good Bad. We're talking Wings and Paul McCartney. And guys, I think this is the portion of the episode where we begin to apologize to Paul McCartney fans and Wings fans because we have to. Pick the pace up a bit. There are still a couple of albums I know we want to spend some time in depth on. So London Town and Back to the Egg would wrap up the Wings portion of the McCartney uh, uh, career. Uh, London Town for me is, is is kind of replacement level McCartney, right? This is like, all right, this yeah. is kind of what you expect. I, I like uh, I like I'm Carrying as a very simple, sweet love song. Two verses and a chorus. That's all that's there. Um I like, uh, I actually, I like with a little lock more than I'd like Let Him In, for example. Uh, I like that arrangement of synths and electric piano. Uh, the lyrics, if you listen, are, are, are actually quite striking. There's, there's passion to those lyrics, uh, exploding and rocketing. Um, so while the, uh, while the arrangement and the music is a little, little calming, the lyrics actually kind of brighten things up. And that final verse where he kind of shreds his voice in a, in a, a tune of hopeful desperation, I, I like it quite a bit. Um, Back to the Egg, quickly for me. This is, you know, new members, uh, two new members for Back to the Egg. And this is a harder album. I don't think this deserves the uh, the beating it gets in some circles. The back half of the album is very rough for me. But I think the first half, there are some pretty good up-tempo rock 
McCartney tunes. Getting Closer uh, is a is a fine single from the album. Spin It On uh, really played. I don't know. I, I don't know the you know beats per minute. Might be one of the fastest songs in the McCartney catalog. Uh, old uh, uh, old, old Siam Sir is uh, is 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 a little forced and unconvincing, but it but it rocks all right. Um, I think as a swan song, which Back to the Egg was, they didn't know at the time. It's it's fine. It's fine. I think it doesn't deserve kind of the the negative reaction that 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 I've seen in, in some some areas for for Back to the Egg. The best no, thing no, you can great, say about you, let me go first. Go first. Go I'm sorry. I was going to say the best thing you can say about London Town is uh, that the best song is Denny Lane's. That's not a great compliment. <laughs> uh, and that song is is Deliver Your Children which uh, nobody ever talks about, but they should hear because it's a really, really, really great song. Deliver your children to the good, good life. Give them peace and shelter and a fork and knife. Um, it's uh, a really kind of an, an angry, upbeat uh, folk rock song, uh, kind of with an aggressive, almost Irish, you know, I think of Irish, proto-Irish punk going on for it. Uh, and it's also close to being the hardest thing on this record, which is 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 as close as Wings ever got to soft rock, true soft rock. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you know, London Town and with a little luck, those are kind of f- like nicely written, very pretty songs. But man, they'll put you to sleep. There's not a lot on that record that really has ever done much for me. And of course, it has the misfortune of ending with a song titled "More Smooth Than the Gray Goose." Oh um, boy. Which is a, a thing that happened that Paul McCartney did, and he allowed to happen, and we have to hold that against him for the rest of. But, his but life. you know what's funny? Because this is emblematic of what's going on here. This this is when I started uh, caring less than I had for the previous seven or eight albums in the previous you know few years. Uh, I you know I think it's clear that this stuff that he was putting out. Uh, was not as good as what he was doing. I mean, I, I don't know if I ever want to refer to somebody as being past their prime. But listen, mean, if, they put, if they if they put Mall of Kintyre on this thing, I would have liked it a lot more. Now that is a great song. It is random it's, it's, a one-off so single? He was still capable. Get. Exactly, he was still capable of greatness, and I think that he believed he was still so capable of greatness that he could book put dumb drek like Morse Moose. On there, and people go, "Hey, it's just McCartney being goofy." The way that there are probably ten cuts that we've already described that that he did in the previous seven or eight years that were just McCartney being goofy, but they were in their own way great. And, and Not but, anymore. And right, and this that's, is, that's, that's the way I feel about Back to the Egg too. This is a sixteen-song yeah. album, man. Yeah. Like he's trying. There's a lot of music yeah. here, but none of it stands out. Like I, I've had this album for twenty-five years now. Twenty-five years. I listen to it period. I read like two years or so. I'll drag it out from the archives and try to give it a shot it's never made an impression on me and in fact i think it's like one of his greatest failures simply because like yeah okay in the mid 80s we all knew that paul mccartney wasn't making good music no one's going to press to play looking for classics all right but this is still the wings era this was a collapse in my opinion i know scott's is a little nicer thing about yeah. it than i would but like yeah it's suddenly like the hooks were gone it was him trying to, to you know rock out again in fact there's a song it's like recorded with a cast of thousands. Basically, every great, you know, 
rock celebrity of the UK scene in the late 70s called the Rockestra theme. Um, yeah. And it just sounds generic. It, it's not. Yeah. It's not even a good song. It's just like a a really. Gen- it's like the kind of thing you would hear. You know, introducing a football team as they ran onto the field. It's not that very. It, I, I'm depressed by it. It was the moment where I thought Paul McCartney had lost it, uh, but I was wrong because after uh, Paul tried to take wings to Japan and foolishly decided to also smuggle in like four pounds of high grade weed <laughs> at the same time, got arrested, thrown in jail. Barred forever from re-entering the country, uh, Wings was dissolved, and he retired to his estate in Scotland to record another solo album. The first one he did was McCartney in 1970, and then in 1979, he recorded McCartney 2, which mm-hmm. is as weird as they get, was dismissed and reviled again upon release, but I think is now kind of a post-punk weird do-it-yourself masterpiece. I love this album. It is weird. It is uncompromisingly strange. And uh, boy, if, if we don't excerpt temporary secretary <laughs> here just to annoy all of our listeners, I'll be really filled with regret. Well, it'll, it'll sure annoy me, as did <laughs> as did this virtually this entire album. I, I, coming up, I mean, I, I don't know if we're going to uh, uh, block out a couple of minutes uh, for wonderful Christmas time, but it might be one of the most annoying things the man ever did. Uh, at, at this point, I and and, and it's that's it's a good funny. song, Mark. I uh, but but this this is what I, there have been a couple of songs that can can you do what I've done on a couple of occasions where it's not your where uh, let's see let's see there's something that you personally like versus something that might not be your cup of tea, but you kind of respect it. Mm-hmm. I, this is where I can't even feel that way uh-huh. about this. Maybe, <laughs> may, maybe it was because I was just so down the road and not really to return to having McCartney do anything I cared about for maybe another, you know, not to telegraph the album too much, almost another 20 years. At this point, I was so unplugged and dismissive that maybe I wasn't taking things at the face value that he deserved. Scott, I don't know. I would give this another uh, another listen. I recommend it. Uh, I probably heard it 10 years ago, 12 years ago. Didn't think a ton of it and listened back again in preparation for the show. I like this more than I probably have a right to. I mean, this is adventurous stuff. It's McCartney trying things out again alone after the breakup of of uh, of Wings. And goodness gracious, I, I think it I think it works pretty well. And I think there's a ton of interesting stuff on this album. I like coming up quite a bit. Uh, that, that guitar part, which sounds like it could be from a Talking Head song. That yes. thumping groove to it. That quirky falsetto. I like it. And look, Temporary Secretary, I think I wrote in the show notes, it, people are going to say it's the worst or the best. Uh, not a lot of in-betweens. I love Temporary Secretary. And there's always one song. That sticks in your head uh, as we prep for these shows and, and, and comes back again and again and again. This time it was Temporary Secretary. The sequencing, it's, it's weird. There are these bizarre vocals, but I love it. And it sounds modern. It sounds like it would if it were released today by an indie pop band, you'd say, well, that, 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 that's a pretty good song. I as like I it a said, lot. As I said, if that had been put out by Devo, yeah. man, people would be hailing it as a post-pop <laughs> classic. Find for me some 
sweet sitting on my knee. She can keep her job if she gets it wrong. Ah, but Mr. Mott, I won't need her long. All I need is help for a little while. We can take vacation and learn to smile. And a temporary secretary is what I need for to do the job. I need a Um, nobody knows. I, I like the, the kind of loud bluesy riffs on, on Nobody Knows. Um, Frozen Jap, uh, stay with me for a second. It, it reminds me of the soundtrack to a John Hughes movie in the 80s. Like, I, I can picture <laughs> planes, trains, and automobiles, some portion of that film playing as Frozen Jap plays. It just has that sound to it. And by the way, wonderful Christmas time. I will take that every day of the week, twice on Sunday over Happy Xmas War is Over. So, Oh, that, I, that's not correct. That, I have to say. I, I, I like uh, wonderful it, Christmas it, time no, a lot it, better it's, than London's because I This is from the guy, this is from the guy, me, who thinks that Imagine is a lovely melody, but one of the most execrable, terrible, yeah. lyrical messages in the history of popular music. Uh, Happy Christmas War is over. I, I will love it till the day I die. I do. I like it too. By the way, I want to point out that McCartney 2 isn't just bizarre synth pop experiments. There's some nice, quiet, haunting acoustic experiments like waterfalls. Mm-hmm. You know, don't go jumping waterfalls. Please keep to the lake. Uh, very, very kind of quiet. He sounds like he's, you know, on the moon. And I need love. Yeah, I need love. Like a castle. Tower, like a garden needs a flower. Yeah, I need love. Said I need love. Like Go away. Don't go just singing in the most lonely way and then one of these days which is the song that ends it just again you know a man alone in a room it's dark there's an acoustic guitar and some echo and it's it's a very nice nice way to end the album mccartney 2 is a record that uh, again if you like post-punk if you like synth pop if you like any of the sort of late 70s early 80s developments in popular music you're gonna like and you're gonna be shocked that you do because again this is not the record that you would have expected from paul mccartney this is not slickly assured uh you know you know popular music with strings and and well done full band arrangements it is a man in a room recording his weird whimsies and putting them out uh for all the world to hear but if you didn't like that, you will probably like the follow-up, Tug of War, which a lot of people consider to be his last truly great album. I might even agree with that. I think Tug of War, 1982, 
is one of the finest records Paul McCartney ever made. He did it uh, in the aftermath. It's hard to, you know, avoid this aftermath of John Lennon's assassination, and uh, it it was his return to the commercial mainstream, wildly uh, commercially successful. And there is, I would say, not a single song on this record I dislike. I, I would agree, and yet I was still, and it's kind of funny because I mean, all of this is seen through the lens of our own biographies and mm-hmm. and so now we're in we're in the spring and summer of 1982 when these things are coming out i'm about 25 and at this point i just think i had moved on to other things i had that guy in my mid-20s you know antennae out for some of the early new wave for some of the post-punk for some of the arena rock that was still my guilty pleasure and i, ju- I just w- wasn't giving these enough shrift and yet as i've come back and listened uh, to tug of war and to, to to take it away at ebony and ivory and to get it his duet with carl perkins yeah. this album i had i had forgotten how really good this album was i, I think this is a a high point a real high point um it might not be the very best but man uh you know george martin comes back to produce you mentioned the carl perkins tune get it which is great uh take it away uh, spoiler is on my list of five i think take it away is one of the absolute finest songs that McCartney wrote and recorded during his solo career. Uh, help from Eric Stewart from 10CC, which you can hear in those oohs and ahs toward the end of the song. I love that. It is just such a massive, hooky chorus to this song. That off-kilter uh, percussion through the song, the off-kilter beat at the start from Ringo Starr, who guests on it. I think it's one of the more complete songs put together by McCartney during uh, during his solo career. I, I love Take It Away. <laughs> Watching the show with a paper in his hand. Some important impresario as a message for. And everyone knows Ebony and Ivory, the Stevie Wonder track. But there's another collaboration on the album, which is so much better. What's that you're doing? Go listen to What's That You're Doing. Oh, my God. Uh, this electro-funk piece with Stevie Wonder and, uh, and, and, and Paul McCartney. What an amazing track. And they stretched that out to like six minutes or so of jamming. I would have taken a few minutes more. I love What's That You're Doing. Um, the way I think about it is that, you know, uh, Ebony and Ivory sounds like it, it's a song that belongs on a Paul McCartney album, yeah. for better or worse. <laughs> What's That You're Doing is a sound a song that sounds like it could have been on a Stevie Wonder album. Yeah. And not for worse, but for better. That could have been on Songs in the Key of Life, and that would have been a great song on it.
it has adventure. You know what it shows? You know what it shows? It shows, and, and it's probably if this hasn't come out already, obviously, the amazing versatility of McCartney and the roots. You know, it, I know time for many. We're getting short. We'll talk about Run Devil Run, getting back to the rock and roll roots. But but his ear and his sense for R&B, for soul. And then when you go back to McCartney and Lennon and, and the music that they were, what they were listening to when they were kids was up, was early, early American soul and R&B. And he yep. never, never lost his affinity for that. There's actually a lot, I think, of the R&B influence on, on Tug of War, which wasn't quite as apparent through some of the 70s era Wings output. It was more arena rock, right? Tug of War has some more of those R&B influences, and I think it, it just works wonderfully. I'm still not sure whether Tug of War or Take It Away is the best song on this album. Take but, It Away. Uh, the album makes it easy because it begins with both of them in a row, yeah, right? Yeah. At the horn section on Take It Away, that horn section, it, it's got to get you into my life, updated. You know, got to get you into my life is like the young kind of like brash kid, you know, trying to impress you with here. Here's my great horn arrangement. And then like, you know, and Take It Away, it's like he's wearing a tux and a tail, <laughs> you know, and he's got a bow tie on and he's sophisticated with a martini. He's James Bond. Take It Away. And uh, bam, at the end, especially at the end when all the horns come in, uh, what, a, what a magnificent moment that combines both, you know, classiness and smoothness with just an irresistible pop hook. Um, but again, everything on this album is pretty good. Somebody Who Cares is a really underrated, sad, mm -hmm. quiet ballad. Mm -hmm. Here Today is his tribute to John Lennon. Yep. Uh, but there's another one that I also like to point out, which is, is a song called Wanderlust, uh, which is his, uh, uh, you know, his it, kind of When I'm 64 redux in the sense that he – did a, the same trick that he does on when in 64 he pitched his vocals up higher in the studio than he actually sang them because mm -hmm. he wanted to get them into a key that he wasn't capable of hitting comfortably because he wanted to sound youthful because it's a song it, it's a song about a boat nominally but obviously it's about being youthful and wandering around and just that final ending where you know the let out wander lust and then the backing vocals oh where did i go wrong my love they go into canon with one another they're they're resounding back and forth with each other and then finally you know it's wanderlust for me bam and what a fantastic song assured it was and also how kind of weird that it seems to be the exact point at which McCartney lost it because I really don't think there's anything that either all three of us want to really say about Pipes of Peace, Give My Regards to Broad Street or Press to Play which are the next three McCartney albums and basically cover the majority of his 80s which I don't think are that good. Yeah, and, and listen, is it not just to save time because I could do this all day? But I, I, it, I, I don't want to. It's funny because on the fly, I don't want to seem to disparage as the '80s get to the '90s and you get to Flowers in the Dirt and Off the Ground. Even those are only middling efforts to me, which is 
probably, you know, my, why don't you guys do what you want to do off of those? And then we get to, the, the, to I think we're going to have a couple of disagreements about flaming pie. So do what you guys <laughs> want to do on, on the flowers in the dirt and off the ground. Well, I know Jeff loves flowers. I'm going to let him take that in a second. I, I'll mention one thing from that 80s era, and it's not spies like us. Uh, by the way. <laughs> uh, I just want to spend a second on Say, 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 which is the Michael Jackson uh, yeah. uh, collaboration on Pipes of Peace. I think Say, Say, Say gets kind of thrown away into the ebony and ivory category of, of this commercial sellout. I mean, Michael Jackson is involved, for goodness sake. It's going to sell a billion copies. Say, Say, Say is a terribly well-written song. Uh, is. It is something that could could have, fitten on, could, have fitten, could have fit on Thriller, in fact. It is a tremendous uh, rhythm track that Michael Jackson brings to it, combined with an amazing sense of harmony that Paul brings to the track. And it, it, it just really is a fine pop song. There's no reason to slag something just because it's popular, and that happens a lot. Say, Say, Say is tremendous. And the part of the song that I love each and every time is when Paul takes it in the You never, ever worry, and you never shed a tear. I love that part of the song, and then Michael Jackson comes in. So I just, you know, Say, Say, Say. I want to at least rescue from the uh, from the from the eighties malaise of pipes of peace and Broad Street and press to play. That's a uh, tremendous was, song. So it's also not the only uh, collaboration because right. uh, first cut on second side, the man is another duet with Michael Jackson. I like that one too. I think that there isn't a lot to say about that mid '80s era. Uh, there's a song called "Only Love Remains" on Press to Play, which I think is just McCartney, even in his his, his lowest point, his nadir, can, can write a beautiful love song. Uh, find that right chord change that makes you think, like, hmm, if I played this for a girl to win her heart, I would succeed. Uh, but he doesn't really come back until he uh, decides to collaborate with a certain Declan Patrick Aloysius McManus, <laughs> uh, better known to the world as Elvis Costello. And that leads to Flowers in the Dirt, which I think is his last truly great album. It was released in uh, 1989. Recordings, he started collaborating with Elvis uh, in 87. Uh, so like it's kind of a two-year era where they're working together and writing songs. And about half of this album is uh, uh, McCartney-Costello collaborations. The other half is just McCartney's stuff. And what a magnificent piece of work it is. There are actually very few songs on this record that I don't like, which is amazing because you're dealing not only with late period Paul McCartney, mm-hmm. say an artist who's been around for a long time. You know, People only have a certain shelf life. And also, you're dealing with late 80s production sounds, which have never aged well. Right. But My Brave Face 
works. You want her too. This amazing, angry duet between Elvis Costello and Paul McCartney. I remember when I first heard it, I hadn't heard Elvis Costello before. I didn't know who he was at the time when I heard this song. I was like, who's that guy? He sounds like a psychopath. You know, his, 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 his voice sounds like sandpaper. You know, now, of course, I love Elvis Costello. So I, You Want Her Too is a great, great duet. Um, there is a song on the end of this album. I could name everyone. I think Distractions is really great. Uh, it's a solo McCartney song, very gentle, very you know, kind of a, a kind of a liltingly, seductively acoustic-based song. Put it there is also good. But the one that I still come back to is "That Day Is Done," which I think is one of the greatest Paul McCartney songs ever written. I think Elvis Costello maybe did a better version of it when he recorded it with the Fairfield Four years later in nineteen. 96, but I will never get over the power of those lyrics and those chords. I feel such sorrow. I feel such shame. I know I won't arrive on time before whatever is out there is gone, but what can I do? That day is done. It is such a wonderfully observed lyric. I have to think that Elvis wrote that lyric and McCartney did the music, but it is the perfect example of how great their collaboration could be when there was a true meeting of the minds. recommend flowers in the dirt to people who have just sort of assumed that you know post tug of war that mccartney isn't worth paying much attention to this is a great album i hope that the the effect on the audience is kind of like the effect that it's having on me because you you guys from starting with mccartney too and going through some of these it uh it, it really is making me want to <laughs> go back and uh and, and revisit i i don't know I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of funny. I know it, 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 right after this came off the ground, do yep. you guys th- think that that was a stubbed toe? Because we got, I, I just. I'm kind of def- do, yes. kind of do. There's yes. a couple yes. good songs on it, but I've never had much love for it. I think Come On People is good. Yeah. I think oh, the title track is okay, but beyond that, and I was like, no, no, I'm not, I'm not a big fan. I think it was really only on Flaming Pie, which I know you want to talk about, where I, I think that there was an uptick. Uh, okay, well, that's the thing. but and, and I think you view it as an uptick. It, for me, was, after more than a decade, the first McCartney album that I really thought was absolutely superb 
from start to finish. And I think that he had a certain sense of nostalgia because the whole the whole flaming pie imagery is when people ask, you know, and it was John and Paul riffing at some some news conference about, you know, there was a, a flying A, it came out to the sky with a flaming pie, and then there were the Beatles with an A, and they said to him, and, and and it was it was it was something that he was he was clearly doing. It was his first studio album in over four years, and I just absolutely love every moment of it from the song we were singing the world tonight we made a, a bunch of people make um i believe clumsy comparisons to blackbird even with songs like bluebird on band on the run that i like i think calico skies is blackbird and it's the only record of his that i think is and i just and, and from the collaboration with steve miller used yep. to be bad uh, oh, I just, I just, it is, it is, it was the first time for me in almost 20 years that I've been totally jazzed about a McCartney solo act. And I like Flaming Pie quite a bit as well. The title track is great. The World Tonight is, I don't know how far you want to go back, but you know, one of his best songs, I think, in the past 15 years up to that point. That opening guitar part always reminds me a little bit of the uh, listen to what the man said, too. Yep. So it's kind of yep. a nice throwback uh, to something from, at this point, I guess, two decades ago. Sitting at the center of a circle Everybody, everybody wanted something from you I saw you sitting there I saw you swaying to the rhythm of the music Got you playing, got you praying to the voice inside you can't say with certainty that Flaming Pie is the last great McCartney album, because quite frankly, the ones after this, I have not given due time to, and there's been a ton. I mean, McCartney has never stopped making music. He is restless. He is restless. And, and, and well, I've, most... I've paid attention, and then I think that, that uh, I think Jeff wanted to talk a little bit about uh, about uh, Run Devil Run, yeah. which is a wonderful roots, you know, old style rock and roll thing. It was just McCartney having fun. But then when you get to driving rain and 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 just which I thought was okay, chaos and creation of the backyard, memory almost full, kisses on the bottom. I mean, please, I I, I just there's nothing the matter with them. They would be probably significant uh, utterances by lesser artists, but it's just it's kind of McCartney on cruise control to me. <laughs> so okay, Flaming Pie was the album he recorded right after the Beatles anthology series had yeah, come right. out, and and if you bought it at the time, and I remember because I bought it at the time, uh, it, it was even done with like you know uh, Mark Lewis and liner notes, just like the Beatles anthology, very clearly inspired by that spirit, and it has some of that spirit too. I think its best moments are its first two and its last two songs, uh, Beautiful Night and uh, A Great Day, at the, in particular at the end, are. are really really powerful stuff and especially you know when you realize that this is written you know as, as linda was dying you know of cancer and you know i remember sitting in a coffee shop somebody said oh you know did you hear the news mccartney died i'm like what <laughs> i was like what 
and I ran to my car radio and I was like, oh, it's Linda McCartney that died. And then I realized, you know, why she looked so frail on the cover of the album. Uh, because that's clearly the state that she was in, and, and you really you hear that in the music. And then uh, the reason I like Run Devil Run, uh, which is the follow up that he did to that several years later, um, is because it feels like he is really trying to exorcise those devils, uh, uh, the, or, you know, the, the sadness. You know, it, it's it's an album that it's almost entirely covers fifties era covers. This could be a recipe for disaster. I mean, so many bands have tried to do like the band tried to do fifties covers. Other uh, groups have tried to do them, and they're usually terrible. John Lennon's Rock and Roll. Have you ever heard that? It's a terrible album. <laughs> it's not um, good at all. It is not good at all. But McCartney's Run Devil Run is amazing. He does everything from like Gene Vincent and Carl Perkins and Chuck Berry songs to throwing in a couple of his own self-written songs that are kind of written in that 50s, 60s style that just work. And it is, I guess, you know, in a way, an old man's record. If, you know, if you're like me, you're a young man. Thank you very uh, much. An old man <laughs> inside <laughs> of a young man. Correct. Right? Uh, but yeah. boy, it's just, it, it is it is a record where you hear, again, McCartney, everybody always is, is the rap on him is that he's been emotionally facile. That, you know, it's like, oh, he just, you know, he's an entertainer and it's all just surface level stuff. But, but actually, I think, you know, as I made the argument in his early career, you could hear him struggling for acceptance on all those early records. And here, just as much, you hear the sound of him trying to work through the loss of, you know, a, a person that he loved more than anybody in his life. And 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 finding a way through the despair into to something deliriously happy or at least forward looking. I really like Run Devil Run. And uh, you know, that's the last McCartney album that I can say that about. I know it does just the 60 seconds if we have it. Have either of you ever seen him live in any of his incarnations? No, I have not. And I have not either. All right, here's here's 60 seconds on that. I think I've already identified, you know, I actually didn't see them. Here's a quick uh, thing. As Beatlemania was taking hold in 1964, Beatles on Ed Sullivan. I never saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan because I was in England. My dad was stationed at the Air Force <laughs> Attaché at the U.S. Embassy. So my earliest records are on the old British Parlophone label. They're probably well, good. Right. You got the official versions then. That's exactly great. right. Exactly right. And so I then came in and started paying attention, paying attention. I wasn't of concert going age, you know, until the mid 70s, late 70s. So when I sat down for, for Wings Over America, that was one of the concert experiences of my lifetime. I saw Paul roll through the various cities in which I've lived about three additional times. And the last time was about five or six years ago. It's not pretty, boys. It's not pretty. Not because he can't, not because he can't hit the high notes anymore. It, it just, this is something I never thought I'd say about McCartney on record or live. It seems forced. It feels like he's got car payments, <laughs> and, it, and it's like, oh, and it just it, it made me not want to go anymore. And I, it's, uh, and I don't know how much more touring they'll have now that he's approaching seventy six. But uh, it, it was so joyous to see Wings Over America, and equally joyous to see a solo McCartney tour in eighty five or ninety two or ninety seven or something like that, because he could still bring it, and it was still magical. And I'm not saying that it's not anymore. If he sits down to do Hey Jude, I'll listen to that when he's a, when he's one hundred and sixty four. But that's uh, it's time to let memories be memories. Well, he should just do what Bob Dylan does and just sort of mumble the lyrics out <laughs> exactly. and do the songs and, and just sort of coast exactly. on his reputation as a legend. Perfect, perfect solution. Exactly. And uh, that is the political beach look at Wings and Paul McCartney. We come to the portion of the show where all three of us uh, give you, the listener, our two key albums and the five songs you must hear 
from Paul McCartney and Wings. There are many to choose from here. I'm looking forward to hearing selections. We begin each time with our guest, Mark Davis of 660 The Answer in Dallas. The recent book, Upside Down, How the Left Has Made Right, Wrong, Truth, Lies, and Good, Bad. Find him at Mark Davis on Twitter. Mark, your albums and songs, please. I did these strategically because I felt like we'd be talking about certain things. And I think I've made pretty clear that my two favorite McCartney albums are Band on the Run and Venus and Mars. But if there's things that I really want people to pay attention to, and let's go listen to everybody, go back and listen to our first 15 minutes of talking about the real product. My two would be the first McCartney album and, and Flaming Pot, because I think it's underappreciated. Uh, for the five tracks, it's kind of funny. We've covered through most of these, but the ones that I really want to send people to in chronological order from Ram, Side One, Cut One, Too Many People. I want to send people to Little Lamb Dragonfly on Red Rose Speedway, which is sap and sucrose and melodic brilliance. I want to send people to Band on the Run for Let Me Roll It. I want to send them to no particular album because it wasn't on one for Junior's Farm, which is a Jimmy McCulloch's first guitar work. And then I want to take them to the opening 10 minutes or so of Venus and Mars. And, and as you listen to this, imagine being in a seat for, for Wings Over America as sitting in the stands of the sports arena waiting for the show to begin. <laughs> Starship 21ZNA9, a good friend of mine, showed me a sign. Venus and Mars are all right tonight. And then into the into rock show, where the magic is not just the incredible gritty vocals and the references to you know rock and roll and you know the, the tension mounts, you score an ounce ole. But for my, and I'm 60 years old, 60 <laughs> years old, and 40 years down the road, I, I'm just still hearing, you know, in my green metal suit, I'm preparing to shoot up the city. And the ring <laughs> at the end of my nose makes me look rather pretty. It's a pity there's nobody here to witness the end, save for my dear old friend and confidant, Mademoiselle, Mademoiselle Kitty. Kitty! 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 It's so, so, so damn good. <laughs> Venus and Mars Rock Show is my final of the five tracks. Uh, all right, for uh, for my choices, uh, uh on the albums, man, there's a lot uh, that you could put on this list. I, um, I'm going to tell you to, to get Ram. I think it's a, a great uh, uh, example, a great kind of summation of what he was doing just after the Beatles broke up. Does not did not deserve being slagged at the time. Has risen in re- reputation since then. There's some great tracks. Uncle Albert, Admiral Halsey, uh, I think is one of the great tracks that that McCartney wrote uh, throughout his career. Uh, so Ram's on the list. And then I, I think I'll, I, I like this one the best of the three, as we talked about. I think I'll tell you Venus and Mars. It is kind of the arena rock uh, end of the McCartney spectrum during his career. And so I'll tell you to, to get Venus and Mars. Songs uh, from Ram. Boy, do I dig Smile Away. Uh, Smile Away is on the list. Uh, we talked a bit about that earlier. I think I'll tell you also... Um, from Red Rose Speedway, again, it's kind of the schmaltzy uh, 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 album of McCartney's career. I, I really do like Only One More Kiss or One More Kiss from, from Red Rose Speedway. So that's on the list. Band on the Run, Jet. I love Jet. Uh, the, the exuberance, the vocal performance. It's a great, great song. I-
tell you from Venus and Mars, uh, grab Letting Go. Very funky, bluesy number. Uh, very dark song. Like Letting Go quite a bit. And as I uh, already mentioned earlier, certainly from Tug of War, absolutely one of my favorite McCartney songs, which is Take It Away. It is the best song on Tug of War and one you definitely have to seek out if you have not caught it before. Take It Away. That's my song number five. Jeff, to you. And now I will take it away. So my two albums are, uh, first of all, Ram, uh, for the reasons we've already discussed. I think it's why it was widely underappreciated in its day, and it's a masterpiece now, and people don't are, don't have to argue about that anymore. The second one I would choose is sort of at the end, the bracket uh, on the other end of, of sort of the great fertile period of his career, and that's Tug of War. Uh, I, I just don't think there's a bad song on this album. I, I think you know, even Ebony and Ivory. Gosh, you, you get me in a sense, you get me drunk enough, and I can like. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, we can live together in perfect harmony. Why can't we? You know. Okay. Yeah. Even then, I can get into it. Uh, but the rest of that album is just magnificent, and it, it is really the 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 last place where you don't have to say like, okay, some good songs, some bad songs. No, everything on that record is just really assured, really well done, quirky, thoughtful, strange, and just quintessentially McCartney. My five songs, uh, I have to be the guy to say that maybe I'm amazed is one yeah. of his top five songs, and I'm, you know, uh, I don't really think it would be appropriate for us to, to to do a podcast like this and have no one mention it as one of their favorites. It is the greatest song that he ever wrote to Linda, and it's one of the great love songs of all time. It's a song that um, every time you listen to it, you, you, when it's done, you just sort of want to click back and then hear it again and then hear it again. Whether you're lifting that needle up off of the vinyl or whether you're, you're clicking on your phone, it is just relentlessly listenable and also immensely moving and uh, particularly powerful given that it's one man playing everything on the record. The uh, second song I choose is Little Lamb Dragonfly. We talked about this. It's one of his greatest sweet-like songs, uh, very Beatlesque, very Abbey Road-like. And yes, it is uh, uh, you know, saccharinely childish in, in, in its lyrical conceits but I, there's a, there's a place for that i can imagine myself singing this to my child someday and i probably will third song i'll choose is 1985 uh, the last song off of band on the run as i said if the apocalypse is going to happen this is the way i'd like it to sound uh especially uh when you know, after the, the bomb drops and the apocalypse actually happens uh, we get to all come back for a reprise of Band on the Run. Uh, that is wonderful and just a fantastic song. The, th the fourth song I'll choose is another one we spent a lot of time off, so I won't w weary you by explaining it. It's Beware My Love from Wings at the Speed of Sound. The rest of the album is somewhat dodgy. That song is unforgettable. His best ever, perhaps. His single best song. And then the last song I'll choose is one that we didn't really discuss. It's a non-album single. For a long time, it was the biggest selling single in the entire history of the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. It's called Mull of Kintyre. He literally sat alone in a barn in Scotland with Denny Lane and Linda McCartney and was just you know, smoking a lot of an awful lot of dope, I imagine, and playing around with his guitar and he wrote this folk song because he was in Scotland. He made it a Scottish song and he decided, hey, I'm going to bring in some bagpipes. It is, in fact, the single best use of bagpipes in a pop rock record in history. And for a song that is as rock simple, there's nothing but an acoustic guitar, some harmonic, har harmonizing voices, uh, a discreetly played bass, and those bagpipes, it is relentlessly 
listenable. It will work its way into your ears and into your brain. And I still sometimes think about the mist rolling in from the sea. My desire is always to be on the Mall of Kintyre, and I have no idea where that's even located. <laughs> Far have I traveled and much have I seen Dark distant mountains with valleys of green Past painted deserts, the sun sets on fire As he carries me home to the Mulligan So you're telling me better bagpipes than uh, in the, it's a long way to, to the top. It's a long way to the top when you want to rock and roll by ACDC. <laughs> yes, better play because McCartney hired pros. All as right. As opposed to Angus, or rather uh, to uh, Bond Scott, yeah. who didn't really know how to play them. <laughs> that is our look at Wings and Paul McCartney. We thank our guest. He is Mark Davis, talk host at 660 AM, The Answer in Dallas-Fort Worth, frequent fill-in host for Hugh Hewitt, Dennis Prager, and other Salem hosts, and his recent book, Upside Down, how the left has made right, wrong, truth, lies, and good, bad. Mark Davis, thank you so much for joining us here on Political Beats. This has been an absolute joy. I could tell from, from the previous people that have been on that they know it's going to be fun. But by the time it's done, you go, my gosh. And I'll tell you what makes it is y'all's devotion to the, the, to, to the music and the minutiae behind it. I could not have had a better time. Thanks, thank you Mark. so much, Mark. Appreciate it. Uh, you can find Mark on Twitter at Mark Davis. Jeff Blair, my co-host at Esoteric CD. Another fine episode, I believe, my friend. Same time again next week, buddy. And my name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. You can subscribe to our feed. New episodes, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. Tune in. Just look for Political Beats or go to nationalreview.com and uh, and click over there for all the National Review podcasts. Please listen, enjoy, share, leave reviews. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats.